You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 505. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Lake Burton, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 16th of January, 2022. In today's episode, a Boeing 747 rejects takeoff at high speed at LAX. L.A. police rescue the pilot of a downed Cessna seconds before a train destroys the plane. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, Sidewinders and Sparrows. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 505 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins in New York City. Yeah, New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, GA. And joining us today from her lakeside studio in South. She's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, Dr. Steph. Howdy, Captain Jeff. Glad Howdy. to see you all this, this fine Sunday morning. Looking forward to a great show. I am as well, and also joining us from his studio in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. (laughs) G'day, mate. If you want to get a head, get a hat. Okay. And if you have a head, then you need a hat. Okay. Uh, Also... Joining us from her studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, retired financier, financier, <laughs> and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer director, it's Liz Piper. Hey, everybody. All right. And also joining us again from Wichita, the air capital. He is a aerospace and aerospace engineer and one of the crew members of the uh, C-47 Betsy's Biscuit Bomber. It's Nick Camacho. Hey, guys. Glad to be able to join you again. We are, too. All right. And with that, let's get right into the news. What to talk about today. Stand by for news. 
All right, I'm going to play a bit of video and hopefully it'll just be kind of B-roll kind of thing while I talk about this incident. So let me add so this, this to the screen. before fire's on scene, but you're going to come on, look at the smoke, get the I call. I don't want to hear you. Thank you very much. Okay, now you can see the B-roll in the background of an airplane on fire. On fire! Uh, an Aviastar TU Tupelo, Tupelev. Not Tupelo. That's a Mississippi. Tupelev. TU-204 registration, Romeo Alpha 64032, performing freight flight 6534 from Hangzhou, uh, China. I'm probably saying that wrong. Hang, how do you say? Hangzhou? Hangzhou. 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 To Novisabirsk. 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 With eight crew and 20 tons of general cargo. And somewhere I read it was um, like vodka. Uh, and 26 tons of fuel, I don't know, maybe that was a joke, was being pushed back for uh, departure when an open fire started in the cabin. I'm not sure. Maybe somebody was trying to warm themselves up. I Emergency a closed fire? Uh, yeah. I mean, okay. it, uh, sometimes this happens like uh, when uh, when um, like Islamic um, pilgrim pilgrims go to make their pilgrimage to Mecca and Mecca. they make uh, little fires in the back. I remember it was an incident several years ago yeah, that, uh, that somebody was had an open fire. Having uh, in a barbecue. The back. Yeah. <laughs> I love that grilled food. Um, anyway, uh, had 26 tons of fuel as well was being pushed back for departure with an open, when an open fire started emergency services responded upon arrival of emergency services. About two minutes after the emergency call, the fire had already broken through the crown of the aircraft the crew evacuated safely. The aircraft was damaged beyond repair. And uh, is yeah, the uh, video still like playing? It. Okay. Nope. Nope, it isn't. Okay. So we're showing some pictures now Just of slides, yeah. the uh, the incident. And uh, yeah, I'm thinking with a little uh, speed tape, uh, that thing will be- That'll buff right out. Good, good as new. Yeah, buff right out. Um. That's about all the information we have on this so far. I don't know. Have you seen anything else to kind of indicate why this thing caught on fire? No, I had a quick look around to see if there'd been any updates, but nothing that I could find. Um, yeah. I'm hoping we'll find out something before long because, yeah. uh, you know, this sort of thing really needs to uh, get out so that, you know, all the cargo carriers uh, all the airlines around the world can uh, have some idea of how to protect themselves against something similar occurring on their aircraft. I have to say that this incident sent absolute shivers down my back because if a fire of that severity had happened uh, in the air, of course, there would have been the loss of the aircraft and all the crew. Yeah. As it was, you know, they were probably any quarter of an hour perhaps from getting airborne and the situation would have been so different. Um, so thank the Lord um, it happened when it did and the crew could uh, simply jump out of the aircraft and run away bravely. Um, but uh, Run away! Yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, the fact that it's a cargo aircraft may indicate that it was something that would that ignited that wouldn't normally be carried on a passenger aircraft because there are a lot of the most dangerous items are cargo aircraft only but we've no knowledge uh, we've no information as to what it was that ignited so we can't really say that yet yeah well, we don't know if it was batteries or anything i mean it could have been anything but well 
Louis, mm-hmm. Louis uh, in the comments on the, by the way, this is from the Aviation Herald, uh, says uh, the cargo was vodka, and that is the truth. Well, there you go. That's pretty slammer. <laughs> and he says it the truth. It's on the internet. So that's what. Must be true. It, yeah, it's got to be. That is not fake news. Not mm-hmm. fake news at all. Nope. All right. Well, hopefully we'll find well, out. Well, we've had, uh, we've had vodka burners. <laughs> Before on the show, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah, remember someone <laughs> yes. called, uh, yes. yeah, a Russian airplane a vodka burner. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, Capnell apparently has had uh, pilgrims try to light barbecues on board. Oh, nice. Mm. Yeah. Good to see yeah, you, Capnell. Glad you joined yep. us in the audience, along with everybody else. By the, you know, we don't tell, we don't say that enough. Uh, most people, like ninety something percent. Uh, the folks that uh, listen to the Airline Pilot Guy show do it uh, via the audio-only version. Um, but uh, you should check out our uh, live video uh, recording at some point uh, because uh, it's a lot of fun. People hang out in the chat room and they, they have a good time. At least they seem to be having a good time. snarky comments. They make snarky comments. Yes. <laughs> they seem to be. Yeah. They're just... But, placating us yeah well they're gluttons for punishment um you know obviously they have three hours to waste every week um and i'll just real quick before this passes by um since you mentioned captain al he did want to send good wishes to colleagues in uh tonga no communication is still from that part of the world after that volcanic eruption really yesterday oh that's no good Yeah. yeah Yeah, there was a big uh, volcanic uh, explosion that uh, sent a shockwave uh, entirely around. There. I hear it right now. Wow, it sounds a lot like a dog barking. This this shockwave. Could, could not get to the mute button fast enough. That, that, that dog barking is the sound of an A320 with an engine shut down. Oh, that sounds very much like that, actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, yeah, so yeah, our prayers and thoughts and prayers go to the uh, folks uh, living in Tonga, if they're still alive, and uh, the uh, folks that uh, have friends and family um over there so uh, hopefully you know fingers crossed it's just a communications blackout and and most everyone is okay we're hoping okay uh let's see let's move on with this uh, next item uh final report it was an accident uh, uh Kalita, uh 747 400 uh at los angeles on the 3rd of february 2020 they rejected a takeoff due to a uh trash bin or trash can, we like to say in in the uh, uh, cowboy world, uh, on the runway. Uh, when the let's see, the crew rejected takeoff at high speed, about 110 knots over the ground, after colliding with an object on the. Oh, my screen just went out again. <laughs> All right, I'll just look down here then instead. Uh, collided with a object on the runway. The aircraft slowed and stopped on the runway. The crew reported severe damage to the aircraft after hitting something big on the runway. They were considering to evacuate the aircraft and requested assistance uh, to check the aircraft for damage and fire. Tower reported there was excessive smoke coming from the nose gear while slowing to a stop. Emergency services responded and found a trash bin that had been blown onto the runway and it hit the nose gear of the 747. Both tires of the nose gear had blown as a result. The occurrence aircraft is still on the ground in Los Angeles, 11 hours after the, well, this was the original thing that happened in uh, February of 2020. And uh, 
Liz, I wasn't looking. Did you put the um, – uh, we did. have a picture of the trash can, actually. There it is on the runway. Uh, it looks like a very happy uh, – it's, it's dusty bin. Eh, it's up to no good, for sure. We, we had a <laughs> quiz program in the United Kingdom where that was their kind of uh, mascot. Okay. So we're well familiar with dusty bin. So, so Nick, did this remind you of, of anything um, at all when you were reading this, uh, this incident? I'm trying to think what it might be, but the first thing I thought was like one of these. So this is the trash can from under my desk. No. Um, the only thing it reminded me of was one of our aircraft that landed uh, at an airport in the Caribbean, and they had had an overflow of a local river, and they thought that a big cargo container had drifted onto the river, uh, onto the runway uh, in this water. The, the crew landed at night. They had no idea that they were landing into about a six or nine-inch deep um, water flood. Uh, and in fact, it turned out that it was purely the weight of water that had so badly damaged the belly of the aircraft uh, when it was splashed up from the gear on the nose wheel. Hmm. Uh, is that what you were thinking of, Jeff? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Liz, uh, Liz knows um, because she thought of it immediately and as well as I. Uh, it uh, involved, uh, it was, let, let me give you some hints. Two years ago, a um, little more than two years ago, uh, July of 2019, um, a, a purple trash bin, plastic trash bin. Oh, the, the one that hit memory. your. The RV, the RV you just no. I think so I think we hit no. it. <laughs> I think it was radio controlled. It made a beeline for the front of this very expensive RV. Oh, we had just gosh. we had just picked up yeah. the darn uh, RV, a Class A diesel pusher, this big giant thing. <laughs> I forgot how many thousands of pounds this thing weighs. Like forty something thousand pounds. It's forty two, forty three feet, feet long. Um, we're, we're going down the freeway west of Chicago, one of those bypass freeways. Steph, you probably know which one, but uh, if we're heading up I north think you were to, on the tri-state uh, 294 or 9094. That sounds right. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway. You're we're, going we're, towards Wisconsin. And yes, we, we were. not that far out of the city. And we were, and we we were, were going along, and, and uh, we're in the middle lane, and to the, to the left – our uh, uh, 18-wheelers or what you would call over in your wor part of the world, Nick, uh, lorries, uh, right? HGVs, a heavy goods vehicles. HGVs, heavy goods vehicles. Anyway, big trucks. I think yeah, a lorry's an unarticulated one normally. Oh, okay. Well, these were no uh, – these are like you know with the tractor trailer kind of combination. Yeah. Big, we call them eighteen wheelers or tractor trailer trucks. We um, can't count that fast. A semi. A semi, yeah. And then over uh, on the right side was another lane of traffic, a bunch of pickups and cars and, and whatever. And so we're in the middle, and there's a pickup truck directly in front of us, and we're driving along, we're having fun, and then all of a sudden this purple trash can <laughs> comes flying out of the back of this pickup truck, and it's like right in the lane in front of us. I'm thinking. Oh, what am I gonna? What am I gonna do? I, mean, I can't go to the left. I can't go to the right. I just got to no keep on going. Tactics. And so I just kind of held on and, and thinking, I hope this works out. And what my co-pilot, <laughs> sitting over this guy down over here, was he screaming uh, like a little? Girl? He was screaming. He was going ah! <laughs> 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 I, I looked over. It's not helping. 
<laughs> well, I, it's the only thing I could contribute at the time. Thank you. Thank you for your contribution. Yeah. <laughs> it really was kind of, it was funny. It really was. And we it hit it, and I'm nice. thinking, well, I hope that didn't do any damage. And it actually well, it made it just, a big whack when it uh, clobbered the front, disappeared underneath, and we never mm-hmm. saw it again. So No. Thankfully, it was made of plastic. You actually drug it around all the way up to Wisconsin <laughs> and back to Chicago, unbeknownst to anybody. Yeah. It was, uh, it was an experience for sure. But uh, anyway, that's what I thought of when I, th- when I read this. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, trash can. In fact, Liz reminded me of it. <sighs> okay. Yeah. But it turned out this was a garbage dumpster. I mean, that sounds like a pretty big piece of kit. Oh, a garbage yes. dumpster. Oh. Not just, yeah. not just so a trash like can, a, a dumpster. Yeah. Oh. The NTSB in their final report mm. said an unavoidable collision with a garbage dumpster that had blown into the path of the airplane. Oh, God. During the takeoff roll. That's what, we, that's what they're called, Nick. Airplanes. Not aircraft. Um, <laughs> so that's one of those things that when I say you have the aircraft, or you, I always have to think to myself, am I supposed to say airplane or aircraft? <laughs> you have <laughs> controls? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, there's some like specific uh, wordage, verbiage. verbiage that we have to use. Uh, well, we're supposed to use. And I I usually say you have the airplane, but then the uh, first officer usually says I have the aircraft. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, that. You have that. Okay. We're moving on now. Um, so uh, so the winds, I'm thinking, well, the winds must be uh, must have been pretty high. Uh, 15 gusting to 28 from 340. So these runways are most, you know, east-west runways. So, mm-hmm. you know, almost a direct crosswind that blew that dumpster. Dumpsters are usually like metal. Yeah, but yeah. a lot of times they're on wheels. Yeah, they know? are. Absolutely. Wow. So, so if it was rather it, light, like if it didn't have a lot of stuff. It was... Heading across the taxiway, around the corners, and under the runway, right over skate. Whack. So we're keeping with the old cowboy theme here. I love it. Yeah. I the, the Bonanza theme song in the background. We'll probably get tagged. My bad. We, we did those news items in the wrong order. It should have been dumpster and then fire. So it could have been dumpster fire. Oh, yeah. Liz is making a good point. What? Was she making that just to me or to everyone? She made it to the chat room and everybody else. Yeah. Too. Okay, good. I couldn't because I don't have the I, I'm, I don't have enough screen real estate anymore to see everything. Um, yeah, so dumpster fire. We should have done that in the wrong uh, the uh, opposite order that we did. My oh bad. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, dumpster fire yeah. describes a lot of things. That might yeah. be a good show, show? show title too. <laughs> yeah, I could do artwork for that. That wouldn't be hard. <laughs> That's all over the internet. You just have to steal yeah. someone's dumpster fire picture. All right. Well, let's get this dumpster fire going some more. Let's pour some more fuel on this darn dumpster fire and uh, talk about this interesting uh, occurrence that just happened oh, not long ago. Uh, this is from thedrive.com. Uh, this was sent in to us from Jonathan in Minneapolis. A weird situation developed out on the West Coast on Monday. For seven to uh, seven to twenty minutes, most of the air traffic control um, outlets, or whatever you want to call them, agencies, up and down the facilities. West Coast uh, facilities. That's the word. Thank you, Steph. Okay. Uh, ATC facil- facilities up and down the West Coast went to ground stop. And by the way, it was not even just the West Coast; it was also Hawaii. Uh, some seem to clo- come close to a local ATC zero sort of situation, unlike anything we've seen in 20 years. 
It was short-lived, or lived if you prefer, but timed exactly with the launch of a North Korean ballistic missile. Of course, that's a semi-regular occurrence, and this sort of ground stop is not, so it seems something might have at least looked different at first blush. So far, no word from the FAA or U.S. Strategic Command. What do you all make of this? Now, since he sent this feedback to us, there was an official statement from the FAA. As a matter of precaution, the FAA temporarily paused departures at some airports along the West Coast on Monday night. Full operations resumed in less than 15 minutes. The FAA regularly takes precautionary measures. We are reviewing the process around this ground stop as we do after all such events. Nobody screwed up, so don't try to tell us like blame what. Us. Or, yeah, it's all those cowboys in the FAA. That's it. The cowboys <laughs> yeah. in the FAA. I have a little yeah. bit of um, audio from a couple of places. I think this the first part of this audio is from uh, up near uh, Van Nuys, Burbank area. And uh, let's uh, play that. And then the second part of it is uh, from San Diego. I feel like I go... Uh, I need you to go ahead and land at Van Nuys at this time. Some sort of national security threat's going on, and we are not allowing aircraft to maneuver in the area at the moment. Um, are you able to land at Van Nuys? Has there been any uh, domestic incidents, major incidents, critical incidents in the last 20 minutes, half hour in the in the U.S.? I know it's a silly question. Okay. Uh, SoCal Approach, uh, which is one of our uh, major controlling agencies for the FAA is grounding all aircraft, it looks like, uh, entire uh, Southern California, and I'm trying to find out why. After just run for we checked CNN, nothing's been posted yet, but I'm still checking. I'm not really sure exactly what that what? was at the very end. <laughs> I did listen to it several times. She's checking. <laughs> checking. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, what do you think of this? Kind of exciting. Mm, sounds like there was some sort of credible um, threat that fortunately did not seem to appear and credible enough that they felt like aircraft should be on the ground and not take off. I don't know. Um, I've, I've been I told. I reckon they heard that Nick was going to get airborne. Mm, sensible. <laughs> uh, now, it kind of reminds me of something that happened, I think it was back in 2018 on uh, in Hawaii. Uh, they yes. Somebody accidentally... Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. There was like oh, yeah, an accidental... So, uh, they set off the text emergency. Yes. Emergency yeah. text by... Basically yeah. saying, missiles are on the way. Uh, right. Take cover and kiss your, yeah. you know what's goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I go, oh, never mind. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. I didn't That's need to push that button. That big red <laughs> button that says do not push in case it was an emergency. I accidentally pushed it. Sorry. Oopsies. Sorry. Oopsie. <laughs> yeah, but it does, uh, it is kind of uh, a coinkadink uh, that uh, North Korea had uh, supposedly uh, launched some kind of a hypersonic uh, missile, missile. Uh, I don't know. Uh, just uh, yeah, everybody's being a good comment there. hush hush. Yeah. Oh, Jen Niffer says, was it to clear the airspace in case the U.S. needed to scramble a response? Perhaps. I, I, that good would be a yeah. I don't know, Jen. From Tales from the Terminal. Um, I don't know. What do you all think, uh, Nick Camacho? You're in the aerospace industry, so you would know. Exactly. Everything. <laughs> yeah. He has yeah. Inside knowledge. No. Uh, I, so I was actually kind of curious too, kind of similar to what uh, Jennifer asked there um, about what uh, you know what the uh, advantage to grounding all the airplanes was. Obviously, you know, back in 
in 2001, the idea with grounding everything was they were trying to reduce the number of threats. But um, I was kind of curious as to if it would, uh, like she said, if it would make a response easier, whether we have some sort of defense system that they thought they would be able to utilize and it would be easier to use or, um, you know, sure, it seems like that's such a vast area um, that it would be it'd be difficult to um, the time it would take to clear that airspace would be greater than the time needed to mount the right. response. Yeah. And, and especially if you're dealing with like one or two or, or three or however many threats it is, you know, short of like being attacked by a, a force coming in, you know, it seems like it'd be like a pinpoint thing where like they maybe have to worry about one city here or there. Um, but it seems like it was a, uh, just a, painting with a broad brush there. So I don't know if that was more for our response or um, what, you know, what the thought process was there. Also, I would think that, um, or I guess I would hope as an American that we would be dealing with that threat, like before it got to the United States rather than when it gets here. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Nick. Uh, I just wanted uh, to see that picture again, cause there's a, uh, one of my old A340s parked there at LA, Los Angeles, LAX. I was just having a, a moment there. A little tear was dripping down my trouser leg. Nostalgia. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't think I was supposed to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Inappropriate response. I call that one back. I will try again. What was dripping Aww. down where? Yeah, what uh, was dripping down uh, where? What? I'm sorry. I missed that. A little a little tear was rolling down. Um, it's called yeah, dribbling. Thanks. I was having a little memory there. Yeah. Little well, you have memory. your little moments the entire show every week. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's very true. Those, those DVTs are getting worse. What are you your singing, Liz? Yeah. Memories. Memories. <laughs> trombosis. Oh, memories. Like yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Liz is, is, is serenading me with memories. Oh, that better memories. show. Memories. Yeah, well, it'll be in the final episode for sure. Edit. Okay. Well, let's move on, shall we? Hopefully, we'll find out what happened there in that, uh, that no, incident. You won't. No, you won't. No, no, no. That's never going to be discussed secret. ever again. Yeah, Absolutely. That's... And even if you the, you knew the right answer, no one would admit to it. True. Yeah. I so might true. know. But yeah, I, can't I tell do you. know. And if I did, then I I'd have to kill all of you. And there's a lot of people <laughs> listening right now, so I'd have to track down a lot of people. Oh, yeah, yeah that's right. But Defected. you've got Fred on the case. You'd better do that. He's very good at that. Okay, so let's see. I guess I should set this up before I play this video. This was sent in by Logan and Dominic. And uh, and probably seen by a fair number of you already. Yeah, you'll you'll yes. know what we're talking about here. But we're going to talk about it anyway. Uh, so they say, did you see this? This is a very frustrating story. And this is from um, avweb.com. The FAA is investigating a controversial crash video. Uh, the FAA has confirmed it's investigating the circumstances of a video purporting to show the November crash of a 1940 Taylor craft posted by YouTuber Trevor Jacob. The FAA is investigating this event, the agency said in a statement issued Monday. The agency does not discuss open investigations. The video prompted an explosive and generally harsh reaction from commenters on YouTube and on various forums. Many are calling for an investigation into the production of the video. A few are calling it fake. 
most I think are, um, and plenty have analyzed it frame by frame to support their accusations about its authenticity. Jake, Jacob, whose YouTube channel says he has 126,000 subscribers, has not responded to an email request for comment. We also contacted a woman with a similar name and address to those of the registered owner of the aircraft, but have received no response. In the 17-minute video, shot November 24th, but posted a month later, Jacob says he's flying to Mammoth, up in uh, Northern California, to spread the ashes of a friend. He apparently took off from Lompoc Airport and the... Did I get that right, uh, Nick? Uh, C? Lompoc? Yeah, Lompoc. Lompoc, okay. And the crash was reported to have taken place in Los Padres National Forest near Cayuma, California, or Cayuma, about 50 miles north of Santa Barbara. There is commentary on the weather and reference to his deceased friend, but no description of the circumstances of the alleged engine failure. Video from three angles show him straining to open the door before diving headfirst behind the strut, never letting go of a selfie stick. Okay. <laughs> That's the, what I do in emergencies. <laughs> Make sure I got the selfie stick. Yeah. The, ca- yeah. the cameras also cover what appears to be a crash sequence. After landing in some scrub brush with a few cuts and scrapes, he makes his way to a crash to uh, his crashed aircraft with the camera still rolling. There's more of him hiking out and finally running into other people. The video ends with him climbing a mountain days later to launch a paraglider to finally spread the ashes of his friend. By Monday, the video had attracted almost 100,000 views. I'm sure it's a lot more than that by now. Um, And then Lucas uh, James sent uh, some feedback saying, Hey guys, uh, in addition to the parachute or a parachute, we should all fly with a fire extinguisher up each pant leg. And uh, let's see if we can kind of show you that. Um, Do you want some slides? Yeah, now? some slides, please. Uh, the um, Here's him falling out of the airplane or jumping out of the airplane or whatever you want to call it. So, so stay right there. There is a something, a very large bulky object uh, in the, the lower part of his pant leg. Don't get too excited. Um, that, uh, near his ankle. (laughs) Let's be very clear by near his ankle. (laughs) Yes. Near his ankle and his calf area. Uh, a very bulky thing that, uh, looks a lot like a fire extinguisher. Once you hit the next, um, slide, Liz, there we go. Uh, again, you can almost, you can see the regulator. Um, and, uh, anyway, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Anyway, let's play a little, I'm not going to play the entire video because it's quite long. Uh, but um, we'll see. It just I don't know. It kind of looks a little suspicious to me. So here we go. This is taking off in the Taylor Craft. I mean, if he did actually take this, what a waste of a Beautiful historic airplane. airplane. Yeah. Okay, so that people have mentioned that the. The, the door. Oh, wait. On the way to Mammoth, beautiful day. The doors. Okay, his friend's ashes. The door is already propped open. I don't know if that's normal or not for flying around. Uh, is it with the door or just running? the window? Yeah. Uh, the door actually is. I think the whole like door the... was open. Yeah, it does. Um. And then yeah, uh, the door is definitely propped open. Uh oh. Oh wait, not yet. Okay, now oh, the engine stopped. 
Hmm. They're over the mountain, mountainous terrain. And uh, he's kind of... Why is he... I don't know. <laughs> That's not really how you trim for best glide. I Why is he think. holding the yoke? Why is he pulling chest? back? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I and mean, then I'm immediately not... like, nah, I'm not going to figure this out. I'm just... He didn't even turn the airplane to kind of click, you know, like look for maybe something that he could. Yeah, like, you know, check, make sure the fuel's still on, make sure, you know, I mean, like, go through all of your. Okay. There's this whole series of things you would do to try and restart your engine here. Yeah. Oh, and he's just saying, oh. Beep. Oh, beep. Oh. And then he, uh. He jumps out. Got a lot of great camera angles. Yeah, well, at least three GoPros on the outside of that thing. Mm -hmm. There was one on the tail. There's one on the so closer to the door there. The prop is not spinning at all. At all. No. I, yeah. I think that's an important note. I'll mention. Oh, is it? Okay. Oh yeah. And so here he goes. Oh, okay. So let's watch that again. He uh, is jumping out, and now he's pulling the uh, sport parachute that he has. I like that he left. With his um, headset attached. Yeah, to his headset attached to his person still. <laughs> well, you know, that's kind of an expensive thing. You don't want to. I was going to say, lose yeah, that they cost a crash. few dollars. Uh, and then we're going down. He's looking for a place to land. He's still. He's got some pretty significant altitude there. Yeah. Yeah. Tons. Of yeah. Altitude. Let's just let's just make that perfectly clear. Lots of altitude. Okay. And then, uh, so now he's he's uh, got the parachute inflated, and he's looking at his airplane, newly purchased airplane, uh, flying in the distance, and then crashing into the side of one of these mountains. Prop, prop is spinning again. Yep. Oh, huh. Odd, yeah. Well, that is kind of weird. Oh, here we go. We got a nice view of the crash with one of the... GoPro is mounted, and then of course from his sure vantage point. Yeah. And here we go, and boom. Oh, let's see that again. Oh, oh, we got more angles though. Yeah. <laughs> let's see it from a different angle. Oh. That camera stayed alive. And then of course we see him. Uh, Making his parachute landing, yeah. Oh, thank goodness, yep. Oh, look, he's on the ground. Oh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Really good assessment of where he'd uh, yeah, yeah, like to land there, too. <laughs> okay, so we have so much to talk about here, I think. Um, I don't know, it looked pretty real to me. <laughs> That's what the uh, Academy Award um, ceremony, uh, they said that. For his acting ability, I think he deserves one of those. Uh, who carries his friend in a plastic zipper bag? I'd be so offended. Yeah. Well, I mean, isn't there a law about throwing things out of airplanes? Or are you allowed to just go around distributing ashes out of an aircraft? I think we can do that. You know, we're a bunch of cowboys here. I, so I think... <laughs> yeah. I think there might yeah. be something in California about oh. ashes, but you can, as far as the FAA, you can 
The FAA yeah, you rule can, is you something can, like as long as you're not endangering people on the ground. You can drop things from airplanes as long as you're not endangering persons or things on the ground. Yeah, like toilet paper yep. and stuff like that. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you think I'm joking, but I mean, they have like or, contests yep, or something you, like with yep, toilet they throw paper. Toilet paper out and yeah. cut them streaming or flower bombing and mm-hmm. oh, okay, and that's like why that. I couldn't get any toilet paper when the pandemic started. <laughs> <laughs> it's all for people throwing it <laughs> out. Just of wasting it <laughs> needlessly by dropping it out of airplanes. Absolutely. <laughs> no wonder there was a shortage. Yep. So um, you made a point, uh, Nick Camacho, uh, regarding the, uh, the the prop. What what's significant about the? You made a you know well, like you, that, that point about it stopping. Yeah. And then it so was spinning again. Uh, this airplane, this Taylor Craft, is very similar to a Luscombe that uh, me and my dad have. It's a, like a two seat high wing uh, sport airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, same engine, very same similar performance, and uh, our airplane doesn't have a starter. And so I have actually. Uh, back when I started flying it, a couple of times we have uh, shut the engine off and then done an air restart. So you know, restarted in the air just so I could see what that was like. Mm-hmm. And to get the prop to stop in that airplane, the prop doesn't just stop. We had to stall the airplane either two or three times to get the prop slow completely enough stopped yeah. for it or to stop. Enough, yeah, because when you're when you're flying, you know, if the airplane isn't in a stalled condition, you have forward airspeed, and that forward airspeed is going to keep windmilling the prop. So it mm-hmm. basically reverses the process. Instead of the engine dr- driving the propeller, the propeller now starts driving the engine components. But it's you still have the same effect of it's a screw shape and it's moving through the air. So it keeps spinning. So to counteract that, you got to get it super slow. So when I first saw that, like when I first saw this video, I was like, oh, that's odd. The prop stopped. But maybe he had like like catastrophic engine damage. You know, there yeah, is a so possibility. Where yeah. yep, if sure. something mm-hmm. happened inside the engine, yeah, it would have seized or... But then he jumps out of the airplane and, you know, now the airplane, you know, points for its, its trimmed airspeed and it's going to be trimmed different when he's out of the airplane. And obviously it speeds up and it starts spinning again. Uh, when I did it, the propeller started spinning again at about 120 miles an hour. So it, it seems very odd that you would have that state unless you were attempting to make the airplane do that. And he does actually show the, the video just prior to that point. He's actually, he's not pushing forward, trimming for best glide, presumably mm-hmm. in the aircraft, he's actually pulling back on the yoke. Mm-hmm. So thereby mm-hmm. reducing airspeed. Yeah, that would uh, indicate to me that he's got the aircraft trimmed forward. Uh, so he's holding the mm-hmm. yoke back against that trim force so that after he abandons it, the aircraft goes mm-hmm. into a descent. If he'd actually trimmed it out and abandoned it, the aircraft might well have climbed until it mm-hmm. stalled, and mm. it would have been quite unpredictable as to where it had gone. Sure. But yep. it, it would because have been he had it in that, film it that way, mm, yes, yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of where yeah. I'm going with this. Because he had it trimmed forward, it would have been a lot safer for him to abandon it. Yeah. Um, did he do that with something else in mind? Or? Well, and and another thing to note, and I, I'll let Steph touch on yeah. like all of the parachute stuff, sure. but. It's a small airplane. He's wearing a parachute. So he's already sitting like way forward of anybody who ever flies these airplanes because nobody wears parachutes in these airplanes. Nobody, well, and he not does in mention airplanes, but he does mention, and uh, I think in the video somewhere, you know, s- saying, hey, sh- you should always wear, uh, I always wear a parachute. You should always wear a parachute. And then some people say, well, if you look at a lot of his other videos, he's not he's wearing, not a, wearing parachute a parachute all the time. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I think his his comment was something like, "Oh, I'm a I'm a skydiver, so I always have my my rig with me when I fly." Just to, no, um, and that's not something that that we do. 
Um, there are aircraft. So if you're going to be doing, you know, a lot of an aircraft that does a lot of aerobatic type stuff, there are bailout pilot bailout rigs that are commonly worn. Um, typically they have a round um, parachute in them. Um, and we use those um, flying jumpers in smaller aircraft. The actually the has, has to do with the STC, uh, the supplemental type certificate on the door modifications in certain aircraft require the pilot to be wearing a bailout rig as well. I, um, I think, the FAA actually requires anybody in an airplane that jumpers are going out of to wear a parachute because we actually have to wear them in C4 in the C47 oh, when really? the doors open, even though there's like absolutely no way we're going to get sucked out of the door. That's it has to do has us. as far as I know, it's specifically for this. The, it has to do with the specific STC for the door modifications because huh, not okay. all of them require it. So, really? Um, yeah, but I, I don't know more details on that, and someone hopefully maybe can tell me more about that because i i've looked and i can't find um it's, it's just hard to get specific concrete information on that and that's the best i've come up with so far um so yeah so we do um for certain jump operations um you know even if we're not <laughs> planning on anything ever happening uh, there's certain aircraft where we do have to wear our bailout rigs as well um but if we are just ferrying you know the aircraft from point a to point b like our 182 or other aircraft you know even though um our pilots are all jumpers as well we're not taking our rigs with us because we're not planning to open the door. We're not planning on having anyone get out of the airplane. It's, it's, you know, it's not a necessary thing. So, so it is, it is odd that someone would wear their nice sport parachute, which is very different and much more difficult to sit in a small um, single engine airplane seat with it. Um, it's just not uh, yeah, the, the bailout rigs are actually, they're, they almost look like a seat back, you know, they're packed mm -hmm. in such a way that it's it's pretty flat and it almost has like a little, some of them have a little seat cushion on the bottom of it to get the rest of the parachute in there, depending on how it's packed and folded and designed. Um, but a sport rig, I wish I should, I should probably bring mine over. Um, it's pretty bulky on the back and you've got two parachutes in there. You've got your main and your reserve. So it's not very, um, it, you know, it's not easy to sit in one of those seats comfortably with that right. on your back. And the other thing is, you know, the FAA requires people doing aerobatics uh, to wear a parachute unless you're like the only person in the airplane or something. Right. Um, yeah. So, so we, you know, um, it's not uncommon that at the drop zone where I work, um, local pilots who do, who are involved in aerobatic flying will bring their um, bailout rigs for repacks from the riggers. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, you know, another important thing to note is like a lot of guys. So the other use of, parachutes is guys that are flying like high energy or high performance airplanes because if something goes wrong and you have a heavy airplane that's landing at 120 or 150 knots or whatever you might be better off jumping out of the airplane yeah but yeah. like this airplane is an airplane that's going to land between 40 and 50 miles an hour you could land this airplane mm -hmm. in a couple of hundred feet um so it and seems like and to uh, your point there nick he you know he's in the mountains for sure but you can look down and see some um, some areas that might look more favorable, you know, if you were to investigate them a little bit closer. Um, and he had, I, I don't know exactly what his altitude was there, but he had enough time for a, I mean, the video might be um, edited in certain ways, but he had at least a 15, 20 second free fall before he even deployed his parachute. Yeah. Um, and, which tells and you me can he's got plenty couple, of altitude. Yeah. And you can see a couple of areas as the airplane is like of the video of the UAV now flying down, mm -hmm. you can see some areas in the background that would totally be landable in that sort of airplane. And it looks or at like least worth, at least worth investigating maybe a little bit closer before you decide to, to bail out. <laughs> right. Right. 
And because that brings us onto the question that if it was a, he deliberately abandoned the aircraft, um, that is a pretty large chunk of metal to do its own thing and land on someone's house. Now, most of it looked pretty remote, but I'm sure some people that. live around there. You can't exactly. guarantee that it's remote. You can't guarantee there aren't people out like oh, hill walking using that and, land, yeah, doing something yeah. odd out there. Um, yeah, you know, it's also California, and, and it's doing uh, cowboy I stuff. Don't know what the the weather um, <laughs> conditions were in terms of drought conditions. <laughs> you know, but yeah. it wouldn't take much to spark perhaps a, a fire, um, and then have. Yes, uh, Hillel also made the point. He's a terrible actor. I have yeah, to he's... agree. I, you know, yeah. I haven't even watched all of this video start to finish. I've watched like bits and pieces of it here and there because it is so cringy. Like I just have a hard time. I think it gets mm -hmm. worse stuff. It, if you watch it's it. awful. It's terrible. Yeah, I can't yeah. watch it. He's up for um, Razzie. You know those. Yeah, I'm, I'm not impressed by anything that happened in this this video. Liz says he's up for a Razzie, which apparently is not a good thing. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, excellent. I know what those are. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to covering this uh, in uh, six months when mm. we've heard the uh, end of the court case. <laughs> we'll be watching. Yeah, I, uh, so 91.13, right, is the thing that the FAA always throws around, with it, which is uh, careless and reckless. So like when mm -hmm. you do something the FAA doesn't like, but it's not specifically against the regulations, a lot of times they'll use 91.13 to Sure, like to legally, did he, did he actually do something that was wrong? Right. Like, is there a regulation against crashing an airplane you own? I don't know. Probably not, but I'm not, not sure. specifically stated, but it definitely falls into that careless and reckless operation of. Right. So that from the FAA aircraft. standpoint, that'll probably be where it goes. And then from like a state regulatory, uh, like that goes back to what Dr. Steph was That's talking about. That's their land. Yeah. We recently, not we, I shouldn't say, um, but in the state of California, they recently had a deal where uh, there was a couple who was doing a gender reveal. And they were using some sort of pyrotechnic or firework thing during fire season. And it caused a gigantic uh, fire, wildfire. And they either went to jail or got charged with um, some sort of crime for, for that doing that. So I could very easily see that happening in this instance as well. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. I, 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 the biggest question I have about all of this is, Okay, say it actually did happen as purported. He had some sort of catastrophic engine failure. He was really just out there to spread his friend's ashes. I certainly know folks who attach a lot of GoPros to their airplanes for various reasons. You know, they're doing formation flying or they are doing an ash event or they're, you know, sometimes even these gender reveal things. I've seen those involving airplanes as well. And people get, you know, they have lots of GoPros and they mount them all over there. So that's great. Fine. Um, you know, just happened to have his sport rig with him because maybe he was going to go to the drop zone after he did all of this and he was going to fly his airplane there. I can. But if all that happens, I don't think I'd be posting my video of any of that, even if it was for quote unquote educational purposes for other pilots like that's just no, I, yeah. I, I yeah, can't understand his point. Well, yeah, because he's a YouTuber. I understand. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, that if, if this actually happened, that's probably not something I would post to my YouTube channel. No. Yeah, I'd also like your opinion, Steph, on how safe it is to abandon an airplane with um, a, a GoPro on a stick. If you're actually, eh. for real, abandoning an airplane, eh. how... I'm not so worried about that. We leave the airplane with you all know? kinds of things. Pool noodles, okay. hula hoops, uh, uh, Mr. Potato Heads, um, 
yeah. Um, okay. All right. I'm just wondering if you, he, why, how he had the presence of mind. If this was at a real emergency, well, if he's and got he enough, was actually if he's got abandoning enough. his aircraft, yeah. Whether he'd have the presence of mind to film it all on a stick. And why would he have a GoPro on a stick in the first place? That's he a good had the question. whole airplane exactly. GoPro'd up. Uh, yeah. What's the stick for? Yeah. Well, yeah, no, it doesn't make any, that doesn't make any sense at all. And I think that's just more, uh, you know, I was just setting the scenario that if this were, you know, something mm. that legitimately happened for all those yeah. legitimate potential reasons, yeah. then no, it would not be. But, now, tell me but more about the, jumping out of an airplane with a Mr. Potato Head. I want to hear about that. <laughs> Yeah, so you do a group jump and everyone has one piece of the Mr. Potato Head and the idea is to meet up and everyone forms the Mr. Potato Head before you reach break off are altitude. You, you are kidding. <laughs> no, you I'm serious. cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say one more thing about, about this. The, the other thing that's, you know, we talk a lot about um, safety considerations in skydiving and jumping and the place where he bailed out here um, – and I'm sure part of it had to do with him wanting to land close to the aircraft to retrieve his GoPros and other things. But landing in all that brush and other stuff, it can be really hard to judge your your landing. So the the depth at which you'd need to flare, um, if there's a lot of brush and other vegetation on the side of a hill, and it's just setting you up for um, a lot of bad things on landing, potentially, he could have really gotten hurt um, after, you know, bailing out, being under a perfectly canopy you know, descending down and then have a really bad outcome just in the last few moments of where he picked to land. Um, I think I would have gone down to one of those valleys where it looked a lot flatter and potentially less vegetation instead of landing on the side of a hill. Yeah. Because he had but a lot of options because he had a lot of altitude. <laughs> he was being re very responsible. Yeah, he had to take, his, started, uh, uh, had to take his fire extinguisher strapped to his leg down to the side <laughs> of the crash so he could put out the fire that he might Both have Both legs, started. I think. <laughs> Both legs. Yeah. And retrieve those GoPros. Those aren't those are a bit pricey. Never yeah. the airplane. Yeah. And it, the other thing is, you know, the the uh, guy whose ashes he was spreading was a base jumper, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think monkey, so. Or a suit flyer, or one Wing of those suit things. Flyer. Yeah. Yeah. One of those things that had gone wrong, and then you and know, now he's end, out here doing something that could potentially go horrible. Not only wrong, does yeah. this, I. I mean, I feel like I, if that happened to me in an airplane, I'd probably be traumatized, at least for a little while. I would hope that I would get back into it pretty quick, but it'd probably have some effect on me. But then this guy goes out and hops on his uh, um, paraglider or running or uh, whatever it's called, the para wing, and goes out and flies off a hill and dumps the ashes that way. And um, th mean, that, that alone is not... Um, you know, it doesn't convict that's, him. That surprises, me like less. A, that surprises me less. Seems like he has honest. a different level of uh, yeah risk assessment. Yeah, yeah. that surprises me less. That's that's the whole everything about this smells stinks, but it's not not yeah. good. And uh, Armando says, you know, something about uh, the FAA investigating. They are for sure investigating oh, this. Yeah, yeah. They, um, they've already that was the. Um, just of this article that we were reading actually mm -hmm. is that they already are. They have opened an investigation and they will not yes. comment on an open investigation. Right. Hmm. I think he oh, got yeah. busted. Weather is still quite bad <clears throat> here oh, for yeah. those asking in the chat room. Coming down quite heavily now. Some sort of icy, I don't even know, sleet, snow mix and, and very windy. Is it Great. blue ice? 
<laughs> Thankfully, no. no. Oh, good. Okay. Or yellow, good. no. Neither. Yeah. Yellow, yeah. Snow, yellow, blue yellow, snow, blue ice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Avoid those. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll uh, hopefully learn something. I, I am curious to hear more about soon. what the FAA thinks about this. Um, yeah. I think it will be mostly as we expect. Yes. But. All right. Let's move it on uh, to this one. Uh, this is uh, actually something that we've uh, kind of anticipated or thought that might occur as we move on with this uh, pilot shortage um, and the requirements that most of the major uh, airlines here in the U.S. require as um, qualifications to even get an interview. And that is, of course, the uh, having that college, that four-year college degree. And this is from Flying Magazine. Uh, the airline Delta removes a the degree requirement for prospective pilots. We'll the company joins other major airlines and no longer requiring a four-year diploma. Now, I'm not sure if some of the other majors have already uh, stopped that requirement or uh, uh, deleted that requirement I, I or not. I actually think they're the first that I've actually officially seen. I think, I think um, perhaps on an unofficial basis, other airlines have done this as well, especially for mm -hmm. folks coming up through like – um, you know, the regionals that are wholly owned subsidiaries. Um, I, I know that there's been instances where folks, and I'm thinking of specific people that I know personally who um, had not completed four-year degrees, but who have uh, been at a regional, their first officer, captain capacity, and then able to get on with a um, major legacy carrier without having completed that. But I think those have been more on individual basis and not because of a broad policy of not requiring it, the well, four-year degree. This uh, I just re read a little bit more in this article here, and it says Delta joins other major airlines like Southwest, oh. United, and American that don't require their pilots to hold a degree. So that's a surprise to me. I did not know that. Well, there and, you go. Uh, according to the company, on. they said after a comprehensive review of our pilot hiring requirements, Delta has decided to make a four-year college degree preferred rather than required for uh, first officer candidates. Effective. Perhaps that's the the language that they the other airlines use as well. Preferred. That's yes. What I was thinking of. Mm -hmm. And here's another quote. Uh, While we feel as strongly as ever about the importance of education, there are highly qualified candidates who have gained more than equivalent of a college education through years of life and leadership experience. And let's face it, even a monkey can fly an airplane. Um, so, uh, especially an yes. Airbus. Yeah, especially. That's true. They could even fly spacecraft. I mean, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, dogs can do that. Yeah. And right. tortoises. Don't forget the Russians sent a tortoise around is the moon. Is Acme going to follow suit? I don't know, Liz. That's a good question. I, uh, yeah, we have. I, I, I think Acme I think has very high standards. We do. And yeah. Um, yeah. I think they are very good at assessing the individual yeah. um, applicants. And uh, I'm going to keep my educational qualifications a secret in case okay. someone asks me. Oh, we're not going to ask. Because um, uh, I'm great in favor. I'm I'm very much in favor of uh, of taking pilots because of their flying skill and their innate uh, intelligence, not because of what they did. Not at because school, they have a four-year degree and spent a lot of money on something that they well, may or may not. That's true because it does naturally exclude a lot of potentially fine pilots from a great career because they, whatever their background is or their financial. A situation they were unable to go to a university and get that degree. Uh, I mean, well, getting you know your 
flying certifications and time and ratings and everything else is quite expensive. And it's it, you add a college degree on top of that, and you've just increased that cost exponentially. Well, yeah. every everybody yeah. that I know that uh, have this as a career we all realize that having a college degree is not a requirement for flying right. airplanes. It's just a, something that the airlines, the major airlines, could use as a discriminator. Uh, and that's what they've been doing for, for many years. But it's never been really something that was necessary. It was just a, a way to kind of two, – two people have similar experience, uh, hours, um, airline experience – you know, previous to this and it differentiates one does have a college degree, one doesn't. So there it's helps them with their decision-making when they're, when they're hiring. But now they're realizing that it's just no, no reason to have that. There I think anymore. Captain L is saying that my degree in um, underwater basket weaving is not valuable. And I think <laughs> oh, that is harsh. Sorry, Steph. My diploma. Right yeah. there. <laughs> yes. And you're wearing an example of your basket weaving. I know. On I your made head. this underwater, too. Wow. Yeah, I know. Neat trick. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think everybody agrees that the, the college yeah, degree requirement was something that. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Now, let's. This guy we're seeing now on the screen. Um, I don't know about the underwater basket weaving, but he apparently has some kind of a degree in uh, extreme ironing. I can't compete there. I just, yeah, I would lose. <laughs> I would, Rick would be yeah. taken as a candidate over me every day if that <laughs> yep. was the. All right. So anyway. I, I, yep. Yeah, I, I think this is interesting. Just, I, I think if you kind of look over the landscape as a whole, at least in, in our country, I think this is kind of the direction a lot of things are going. Seems like over the past 20 or 30 years, you know, there's a push to like, get more education. And, and one way a lot of people did that was just set kind of arbitrary thresholds uh, that may have been beneficial 30 years ago, but now as education gets more expensive and um, fields get more broad and everything, I don't think, uh, I don't know that it necessarily makes sense, you know. Um, I, so I have a degree in engineering. I think that would be partially beneficial to to flying. But if I look at somebody who you know, maybe goes to school. Um, well, like Dr. Steph's a perfect example, right? She went to school for a really long time. Um, and I'm not yeah, sure. What good did that do her? Well, Zero. I'm not sure how much of it is beneficial <laughs> towards flying. And I, I know. Well, I, I can tell you how much of it is beneficial for flying. All of those years of education I did. There's got to be like one physics class or something that would help you like a tiny bit. No, because I, I took, uh, I didn't even take calculus-based physics. It wasn't a requirement. So I took like the, the easiest possible physics class to take to satisfy my degree yeah. requirement because I only cared about biology stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, even if they said uh, you need a an aviation-based degree or a, an engineering-based degree, I think that'd be a little more beneficial. You know, but at the end of the day, if you were to tell me, hey, you're going to go get on an airplane and you can either get on an airplane with a pilot with no uh, college degree who spent the four years after high school flying checks in a barren at night in crummy weather, or you can get on an airline with a guy with a history degree or a political science degree. Um, you know, that seems like a pretty easy decision for me. Those are, those are important degrees in their areas, in their fields of study, but it just doesn't do anything for piloting. Just watching our, our, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. I was going to say the degree that was famous for that um, in our country when I was going through education was sociology. Uh, in fact, you get a, the average university over the toilet roll holder, <laughs> it would have sociology 
degree. And then you throw it Please out the window of your one. airplane. <laughs> yes. um, just just watching the the chat room here, and they're you know they're uh, we're, we've kind of gone down one side of this conversation, and they've taken the other route a little bit in terms of uh, you know some of the reasons why it probably maybe yeah some of the justification for it. So. Um, couple of the things that have come up. So it does show a level of motivation and perseverance. Certainly. I agree with that. It does show, um, you know, basically, I think Armando said it um, the way I very succinctly, academic ability evaluated as part of academic ability. So Mm -hmm. how, what is your capacity for sticking to something and being able to learn? Um, Those are good things. But I also think that if you've come out of high school and spent all of your time doing the type of flying that Nick was just talking about and did it successfully, that probably you're also motivated and able to learn. So I think you can, I think there are different ways to evaluate those things. I don't necessarily think it has to be a four-year degree. Um, You know, is it unfair to those who have gone out and gotten four-year degrees because it was part of the requirements at a time? Maybe, maybe not, but I think all of those things need to be evaluated. I think we, we get very, um, hung up on, here's our list of requirements, and they become checkboxes. And it's like, tick this box, this box, this box, but without thinking about what do those achievements or, um, you know, uh, degrees or experience, what do those things really mean to the individual applicant that's applying? Has it made them the kind of candidate or pilot that you'd want flying Mm -hmm. your airplane? And it's also kind of spawned another field of study, right? Now now there are schools like SIU and Embry-Riddle and a lot of these aviation schools that have aviation degrees or um, aerospace management degrees. And a large chunk of the study is getting your ratings, right? Like you go to school and you take classroom classes that, um, you know, deal with things like risk management and maybe airport operations and stuff like that. But also um, it builds the ratings into part of the degree, which is interesting. And, you know, that seems, that does seem beneficial towards a flying, flying career. Sure. That seems very practical. You know, if this is what you want to do, design a practical course of study um, that will also make you a better, more rounded pilot. And uh, another one of the justifications for those four-year degrees I was thinking of is that, you know, for some reason you're unable to fly, you know, you lose your medical, have something, some other thing come up in life that you have something else that you can use as a career as opposed to just flying airplanes. Um, so I do think potentially there's some some benefit there, but um, you could also play the other side of that coin and say, well, what what can you do with your degree in sociology or underwater basket weaving that would, you know, be a meaningful career. But a lot of other industries out there, a lot of other companies, corporations have degree requirements for folks in all kinds of fields where it may not seem necessary or reasonable. So, uh, you know, I still don't think it's a a terrible thing. I just don't think it should be a hard and fast requirement. Well said. said. Yes. All right. I think we're all in agreement and uh, which is unusual. Um, actually it's not, Wait, let's find something to disagree about. <laughs> well, well, I was going to counter Jen's point there that uh, it's a bit unfair on those that had to have a degree to join as people mm. now can't just remember the seniority system there, Jen. So those guys that are in a job with a degree, uh, will be well up the seniority list. Someone joining now without a degree is going to have to do their time in the right hand seat for, before they get close to their seniority. So. I think that'll be that'll work its way out. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, I, that was more discussion on this than I th- 
was expecting, actually. That, uh, that's great. All right, let's continue with uh, the last item in today's uh, news notebook. And this oh, is yeah. one that Did is this just... this guy go and get his lottery ticket afterwards? <laughs> I, I think know. he already won, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> so we have a couple of videos here which are just uh, uh, amazing. Uh, there was a dramatic rescue. Uh, a pilot was uh, cr- crashed an airplane um, on landing, I think they're surmising. Uh, ended up not on the airport property, but right off of it, actually uh, on a railroad uh, track. And uh, the uh, police came to rescue this gentleman uh, from the airplane. And let's just look at this amazing video. First is from the uh, body cams from the um, the police. And the uh, there is some audio, but it, for some reason, doesn't come in until almost toward the end of it. But uh, let's just... Uh, Take a watch and listen now. Oops, that's a slide, isn't it? Okay, let me do this one. Remove, uh, add to stream. Okay, here we go. So we see the uh, guy in the Cessna 172 that has just crashed. It's on the railroad tracks. The cops are trying to extract him from the cockpit of the airplane. Okay, there we go. That was a close one there. The uh, tr- They literally dragged him out of the cockpit of the airplane, and they must not have been more than 10 or 15 feet away from it when the train came by and, and hit the airplane. Here's another angle, another uh, piece of uh, video. And let's I think that guy got just as lucky. I was going to say that was almost another casualty. Uh, that wow. piece of airplane that came flying at them—that's amazing to me. Here, let's look at that one more time. I'm going to turn the sound big off. Big piece of airplane. Yeah, yes. not just like small, you know, fragment. Like no, yeah, it looked like an upper, or something. upper cowling or something. Okay, yeah, here we go. We see. hit it. Uh, boom and wow. Oh yeah, I mean like yeah. of some sort. just yeah. a, like a foot wow. or two away from his taking his head off. Uh huh. That's amazing. Whew. Um, so this is uh, in Pocoima. Did I say that right, uh, Nixie, uh, in uh, the Pocoima? Los yeah. Angeles area, is Whiteman Field? Is that where Field. all the cowboys live? I th- that's some of them. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Are you sure? <laughs> I don't know. The I, think these, these, I think all of the folks here can be honorary uh, cowboys yeah. for, their, yeah. <laughs> for their bravery and efforts. Yeah. Jeez. You know, uh, the the actions of these um, police, uh, I think they're policemen, aren't they, that pulled him yeah, through? Yeah, these are police. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah it's absolutely fantastic. It j- just brings to me the contrast uh, between that and the Potomac River disaster with the 737 that crashed there into the freezing river. Yep. And there were passengers drowning only feet away from emergency responders who had been ordered not to go into the water to try and rescue them mm. um, because they would be putting their own lives at risk. Uh, and I remember watching that video, and I've seen it quite recently, and it brings tears to my eyes, to see these guys so bravely working on that aircraft, dragging that guy out with that train only seconds away, just makes me feel so proud of them. Well done, guys. Yeah. yeah. 
I agree. Here's a great comment from Conductor Will. Conductor Will in our uh, live audience says, I'm used to telling people to keep themselves and their cars, trucks off the tracks. I guess I'll add planes <laughs> to the list now. <laughs> so, Will, are you really a – we have a real train conductor train con- yeah. in our audience. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I'm always just yeah. amazed. Always run towards the direction the train is coming from. Get out of the splash zone. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. That's sense. a good yep. idea. Yep. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Wow. I'll remember that when you were about to get run over. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you never know when that might come in handy. That little piece of advice. Really going fast. Yeah, that train was going fast. One of the people in the audience said, "Were they even trying to put the brake?" I would probably think that it would be. They probably didn't see it until it was. I mean, you think about the speed that train was traveling at. um, You know, the the train is looking at, and conductor will can probably provide a lot more details here, but they're looking at the signal that the, um, you know, the safety guard is down and they've got the all clear to continue. And that's all you can probably really see from a distance until you get much closer and realize, oh, there's actually something on the tracks, blocking the tracks. Um, yeah, it's, it's, that's a tough one. Yeah, to me, it looks it, like it takes a just... long time to slow down, you know, that much yeah. mass. I think he actually hit the gas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's like, darn airplanes. I hate airplanes. It's, it's trains. Yeah. yeah. Airplanes are the death of trains. Let's kill more airplanes. So, trains um, good, airplanes bad. Captain uh, L said, what surprised me was that due to the proximity of the railway on the airport that ATC didn't have the means to immediately contact the train company. I just pulled up Whiteman Airport. They don't have a tower. Um, oh, they oh. do, actually. Nope, nope. Just kidding. They do. Um, so Yeah, they do have a tower. Conductor yeah, Will I'd says uh, he is a real live conductor with the only major intercity passenger railroad. Maybe he, maybe he had you. Does a conductor trip? have to work on electric trains? Yeah. Okay. There's conductors on our. Um... <laughs> he must be a good conductor then if he's on an electric train. His railway is hmm. Acme, uh, track. Acme track. Yeah. Acme track. Uh, conductors nice. conduct electricity. No. Yeah, Whiteman oh. Airport does have a does have a control tower. Well, so maybe maybe it had. I mean, if this had, <laughs> I drop it, Sorry. Nick. Just drop it. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll stop trying to explain my sense of humor. <laughs> I was moving on. Yeah, Nick. <laughs> Nick, see where you were going to say something. Uh, uh, yeah, I was going to say I'd be. To to I don't know how long it takes to stop a train like that. It was a. It wasn't like a big freight train. It was a smaller passenger train. Yeah, sounds like maybe the type of train that conductor will drives but i think one of the articles i read said that uh the train hit the airplane maybe five or six minutes after the airplane had crashed Mm. but um sounded like maybe stopping those trains is not a very uh quick or simple process so um, no i i would kind of like to think in 2022 the police would have a a very quick way to get through to the controllers of the railroad and say, you've got to close this piece of track, but yep. apparently not. Right. Yeah. I and, mean, you know, I, I don't know what order of operations are there. You'd think that would happen quickly, but um, they're also dealing with this pilot who is obviously injured and they're trying to attend to that. And that may be, um, you know, was something that was in the process of happening, but with just a few minutes from, the time that they arrive on the scene, see that it's actually on the tracks and trying to get it, it could have happened, you know, a lot faster in real time. It's easy to look back and say, well, there should have been plenty of time to call and notify, but who knows? Um, 
Yeah, Liz, you're saying that uh, Nixie has a good uh, background info on the yeah, about the, uh, airport. the airport, the Whiteman Field. Is it like uh, surrounded by huge um, pastures and <laughs> and and uh, that sort of thing, or is it uh, kind yeah. of in a very um, densely populated? Yeah, to Nick's to Nick's point about cowboys, you know, this is um, it's on the kind of the north. Would we decide? Jeff, kind of northeast North. uh, corner of mm-hmm. the greater LA area, but it it is kind of a, a LA neighborhood, so there is really no options. And somebody made the comment about landing on the landing on the tracks, or you know maybe you should avoid the tracks. And kind of sadly, if you look at a picture of of this area, the home and building density is just so tight around that airport that there aren't a lot of options. And a lot of times, you know the in this instance, if you have an issue right on final or right on takeoff, the train tracks offer a straight, relatively clear most of the time, relatively flat area that you can land the airplane. Um, so it is kind of a bummer. Um, there was a CAP crash about a year ago there at Whiteman and um, a uh, L.A. City Councilwoman um, you know, st- started kind of pushing to close the airport because of the danger and the um, pollution issues. And so now when this instance happened, um, you know, it seems like it's kind of reignited uh, her passion or reignited her push to um, close this airport and turn it into, I don't remember her exact words, but you know, it's kind of like turn, turn this airport into something more viable for the immediate uh, population around that area, Um, which is understandable. Mm -hmm. It's just, uh, you know, a little concerning because when these small airports close, especially in a densely populated area like that, when these small airports close, they are never coming back. Like there's no way to get an airport back in an area like that because closing the airport, you've basically got to, you basically got to um, convince one group of people, right? Whether it's a uh, city commission or an airport advisory board or something like that, you got to, um, convince one group of people to close it. If you ever want to put an airport back in and we're talking houses on quarter acre tracks or smaller than that. So if you, if you say, Oh, well we want to go put an airport back in somewhere, then you're talking about hundreds or thousands of people that are going to be impacted. And, and so there's just no good way to get these airports to come back. And the, obviously the, the safety aspect of it is a, a viable concern. Like I said, there's not a lot of places to land around there. Um, but, you know, a lot of times um, those arguments are kind of politically driven with ulterior motives. I, I don't know a ton of the background with Whiteman, you know, but a lot of people are aware of uh, the issues that Santa Monica's had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They recently stopped selling Avgas at San Martin and Reed Hillview in San Jose. So that's going to kind of cripple those airports. And, you know, when I lived in San Luis Obispo, we had a really cool airport called Oceano Airport that was maybe a quarter mile from the beach. And it was an awesome little fly-in destination, small airport, 2,300 foot runway. And it was constantly under attack to be closed because it was prime real estate. And in that, in that instance, there was like no um, like hiding of the aspirations or anything. There was just constantly, um, you know, developers with large political clout coming in and trying to get the airport closed. So. Yeah, large bulldozers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's Mayor Daly. Oh, that's right. That's what they do in Chicago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, well, it's, you know, it's sad. And it's, uh, you know, think back historically, I don't know how, um, I presume that in most of these cases, those airports were there a long time before the area became so grown up and developed around it. And, and you know, it just makes for tough situations. But it's yeah. a shame to see I, those small airports disappear. I think the sad thing is you will get one shopping mall or one big play park. Yeah. Um, but you'll lose the only airport in that area. Right. Um, and that airport is a means of communication for a, a lot of local people who otherwise would have to travel miles to get to the closest equivalent. And so it yeah. just takes out a, a, that element of infrastructure that uh, is the only representative part there. Yeah, and, and this is a perfect example, right? L.A. is an incredibly dense area with, like, tons of traffic. And so... There aren't a lot of airports to begin with, but if you shut an airport down and you have to travel an additional 20 or 30 miles to get to an airport, you're talking about... That's um, not 20, 30 minutes of driving. That's like Right. You're talking hours. about maybe two hours now. So it mm-hmm. goes from being a, an opportunity to be a day trip or a morning trip to becoming like, now you can't run out there and grab something. Um, so obviously, from, from the obviously uh, self-indulgent aspect of it, you know, it makes it more challenging to like continue to grow aviation, have young people be involved if they can't get to an airport. But also, you know, you got to keep in mind the services that those small airports provide. A lot of a lot of people look at the GA airports and they're like, airlines don't fly in there. So they must just be used by rich people with their own airplanes or, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, there's a lot of misunderstanding thing. from the community about what these small uh, GA airports are and mean to local. Um, yeah, and Whiteman's a, Whiteman's a base for... Uh, I think Cal Fire helicopters, mm-hmm. which seems like it'd be pretty significant to that population considering the stuff they've gone through the last couple of years. There's yeah. CAP base there that uh, I think I read assistance search and rescue. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. they were involved in the crash in 2020. But, um, you know, a lot of times um, medical flights, you know, a lot of the the helicopter aspect of medical flights could happen a little more frequently. But, you know, the King Aaron citation type of cross-country medical flights um, are more easily uh, operated out of some of these smaller airports sure. rather than trying to have to deal with a place like LAX. So there's a lot of intrinsic value to those small airports that I think a common person doesn't see. And if you have a politician say, hey, you live within a mile of an airport, do you know you're getting polluted by lead or whatever? But um, but Nick, but Nick, all that noise, these planes are dive bombing my house all the time and the chemtrails, they're, they're trying to... You know, yeah. Oh, sorry. Can't talk about that. <laughs> But the noise, the noise is horrible. They're dive bombing my house at like 500 yeah. feet all the time, day in, day out, all hours of the night. Can't we do something about that, please? <laughs> right. Captain right. Al has a very pertinent right. point here. Shouldn't we yes. be saying how dangerous it is to have trains running so close to an airport? Good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what was the other okay, uh, uh, thing, uh, Liz? The Okay. All right, here we go. Uh, Conductor Will says, the trouble I've... <laughs> I put it Fine. up and then Liz put it up after me. Sorry. Is I, I many... removed it to put up Al's thing. And <laughs> okay. then I, sorry, Liz. I knew we were going to keep her hands off. <laughs> I hadn't had, uh, gotten it memorized yet. So, okay, here we go. Uh, the trouble I find is many law enforcement uh, don't think the first action is to call the railroad. Every crossing has a blue plate with an emergency phone number and a unique crossing ID. Mm. 
So that's good for oh, all of us hey, to know, sure. I suppose. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And run, away, yes. run towards and the train. run towards the, yes, not into the we right. get extra points for being a public service broadcaster? Yes. We do. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure. They're just, they're racking up as we, I have a little counter over here. It's just like, <laughs> PSA points. And, all and right. Tim Van Ram. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, Nick. I will. I will continue with what he was saying. He was talking about Tim Van Ram. Um, yeah. Commented that the documentary One Six Right um, describes uh, the positive impact small airports have in communities. So if you have any, I feel like we're probably preaching to the choir there a bit. But um, you know, if your friends, family, yeah. coworkers, folks don't understand it, point them that direction. Or if you love great aviation video, because that's that a too. really well shot uh, mm-hmm. documentary with lots of awesome air to air video. Cool. <laughs> Thanks, Armando. <laughs> that may be the most useful thing I've learned on APG. Don't worry, now you know about railroad yeah. crossing safety. Yeah. He's out, he's out of the chat room? Okay. You're, you're booting him out? <laughs> no, don't do that. Armando's a nice guy. In fact, I just Armando. met up with him just recently, uh, which I'm going to talk, talk about, about that. Yeah. in our uh, next segment, which is uh, right now. And I'm going to hit the sound uh, bumper thing. Here we go. Getting to know us. That's the time of the show where we take a break from the news and before we attack the feedback and we kind of get to know what we've all been doing. So where's the camera? I'm looking at a blank screen over here and the camera's over here. Here we go. Uh, where we talk about what we've been doing between shows and who'd like to start. I'm looking for uh, people raising their hands. Step forward. I was actually looking to see when we recorded last because I couldn't remember. Last Thursday, I think. It Uh, was last Thursday. So I pulled that up. A little over a week. So yeah, so let's, um, I'll I'll pick up from there. Go. A little over a week ago. So actually, I got to do some flying the following weekend. Um, A drop zone in Raleigh needed an aircraft. I don't think I've talked about that yet. I don't think I talked about it last week because that would have been too soon. I don't know. My dates and times are all mixed up. So if if I'm saying things that sound familiar, just stop me and tell me to... Shut up and I don't know. Can't hear Nick though because he's muted. (laughs) Um, Stop. Stop. (laughs) We've heard all this. They needed an airplane for uh, their jump operations as theirs was in maintenance. So, um, chance to go to Raleigh for uh, actually uh, just the day we went on Saturday only, Sunday only. I forget. One day I think had poor weather. Um, Anyway, just for the day, but it was nice to actually see the inside of the airplane and um, fly a little bit and, and, you know, not go an entire six weeks without flying. Cause that always feels eh, not the greatest, um, when we're closed for the winter. Um, we're going to do that again this weekend. Um, however, yeah, why not? definitely not cooperated. Um, What's going on there? I'll get that. Uh, well, I'll, I guess I can okay. that now we've already kind of alluded to that a bunch on the show. So you're probably sick of me talking about this already, but, um, winter storm Izzy. um, Cutesy name, not so Is he or weather. isn't he? Is he? Is he wizzy? <laughs> <laughs> That's like fuzzy wizzy. Um, yes, Izzy is bringing quite a bit of uh, inclement winter precipitation to my part of the country here. Um, and Charlotte happens to be kind of right. If you look at the maps of what type of precipitation each area is going to expect to get, we're just in the middle of this belt of ice. And that's Crippling pretty accurate for what, for what it's doing outside. It's... There's ice falling from the sky um, in various I'm impressed shapes. you still have power. Well, it, you know, 
oddly enough, the area where I live in. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually the kiss of death when you say something like that. Jill. I know, right? <laughs> As her screen Sorry. goes, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give in to the commercialization of weather. It's not commercial. I'm, not I'm just reporting what I'm seeing out my window right now. It's um, it's icy and um, not real pleasant. But fortunately, um, the area I live in, we're actually very close to a lot of the power plants and substations and things. And all of our um, uh, power lines run underground here. So the, the it's actually pretty rare that we lose power in some of these nasty winter events. Um Oh, naming every yeah. Sorry, not uh, Hillel is um, criticizing me for giving into the commercialization of weather by naming every stupid low pressure center. Um, I don't know. I'm just I, I didn't do it, Hillel. No, it's just, not her fault. I think you have to blame the weather center for that. Yeah, well, yeah. I don't even think it's weather.com. I think it's the National Weather Service names these storms now because they've got nothing better to do. Um, anyway. Yeah. Noah, probably. Who knows? Um, but that's not the only exciting thing, flying, weather. Um, I got to see Captain Jeff in person earlier this week. Woo-hoo. He's already forgotten. Ray! No, <laughs> no, I, I, no I, I, I will never forget that stuff. Aww. Never. Um, but yeah, he had a, a Charlotte layover, and timing worked out that we were able to meet up after I finished with work for the day, and we had a very nice meal at Buja Gastro Bar, Gastro Pub, something like that. Um couple of drinks and a lot of good conversation so it was that was really nice and lovely thanks Jeff. yeah I really and enjoyed what it. was on the menu uh, we had the garlic shrimp and a flatbread and it's tapas so it's kind of shared plates but oh sounds uh, nice yeah oh, i was, like tapas yeah good job well done yeah, yeah i thought she was gonna she said she'd be taking me to a topless bar <laughs> but it was in, in such a ritzy part of town who would have known yeah, everybody yeah. was wearing tops, topless cheap yeah, in the in the s- snow and ice. Yeah, yeah, we had a great time, and uh, later that evening was the college football championship game that I really didn't get to watch much of because I had to get up really, really early the next day. Yeah, it was not a not a late night. Um, nope. Did someone win? Presumably. Yes, somebody did. Uh, the University of Georgia Bulldogs. Uh, the first time they won a, a national championship since like 1982 or something or 81. It was like oh, 40 or 80, I think. 41 years, I think they said. Anywho, um, yeah, continue. Steph, anything else? Um, no, that's about it. Okay. Um, I actually am kind of anticipating that maybe I won't be working tomorrow. And I'm almost hoping that I'm that our office will be closed because I'm not sure I can get my car out of my driveway at the moment. Um, it's quite yeah, slick it steep and my driveway is very steep. So my new, uh, my new Jeep actually has um, roll and pitch indicators. If you go to just like the off-road page. So I was like, Oh, let's see if my driveway is as steep as I think it actually is. And it's um, at the steepest point, it's 17 degrees. Wow. That's quite a that lot. That is steep. Yeah. Um, and when it's covered in ice, the, the four-wheel drive doesn't, be, uh, doesn't help rotating much. a mad dog at that uh, angle. Almost. I think it's yeah. 18 degrees. Yeah. Uh, One 20. degree off. 20. Okay. Yeah. There you go. You'd Come certainly on. be over-rotating uh, an A340. <laughs> yeah. All right. Very Fair good. Enough. Well, uh, Nick A., Captain Nick, what um, have you been up to, sir? Well, I had a lovely photo shoot with uh, our friend uh, and fine air traffic controller, Adam, and his super uh, 
Fox Red Lab and finished those images, um, which was great because I was a bit pushed uh, to get a plain tail done and do all that extra work. Uh, but managed to get all that knocked on the head. So thanks very much for delaying this um, uh, show for me, Jeff. Appreciate oh, that. Uh, and uh, Adam's uh, going to come back for some more pictures uh, with the lovely Louise uh, later uh in the week um, because um, we want to get some more action shots. Uh, I've been doing some umpiring, so that's kind of my winter bowls commitment is to umpire the odd match. I think I'm a uh, national bowls umpire. But the important thing uh, was that um, our main delight of most retired people are big telly, uh, and I'm going to point the finger at Samsung here because I had a lovely Samsung LCD that suddenly started turning into a spotted monster. Mm. So apparently, looking at the internet, um, purple patches on your Samsung LCD television are a common fault, and uh, it costs more than the TV's worth to have it repaired. So mm. it was a good excuse for me to go out and buy a, an even more enormous OLED Nice LG how many screen. how many inches, Nick? Sixteen. <laughs> no, no, that's something else I'm thinking of. <laughs> it's kind of tight. Uh, oh, six, wait a minute. Six, sixty-five. I wanted the seventy-two. Mm, yeah. Sixteen inches. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you see, I, wow. I go up in increments that's that way. I can get it past Memsab. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, because, you're you're in good company. My um, my father um, also purchased a TV this week. He got what uh, I think a Vizio from uh, Amazon.com. He plugged it in. We went through this whole like uh, trying to figure out how to mount a wall mount for it. But oh, the house yeah. that he lives in does not have standard um, studs in the wall. They're more than 16 inches apart. Yeah, yeah. 16 if, inches comes up a lot. Oh right. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. So, wait a minute. So Hang you can't on. Mount the- <laughs> <laughs> I'm never ready for this. Okay, okay. Sorry. You just had it 16 up. inches. That's what she said. Um, <laughs> I guess it's not loud enough because uh, here, everybody stop. Mm-hmm. 16 inches, huh? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we, we ditched the idea of the wall mount. Is that because it's a circular house? Well, it's because the wall that we wanted to mount it on is not load-bearing in any way, shape, ah, or form. Okay. So it didn't right. have to have studs every 16 inches. Um, right. So we were like, 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 go through this whole thing of like mounting a board across the studs that are. And then we're like, screw it. Let's just get a nice like cabinet to put the TV on. Yeah. So went through that whole rigmarole with trip to Ikea and whatnot and, you know, putting together Ikea furniture. And then he finally gets the TV set up and it worked for, I think, less than 24 hours and then just quit <laughs> altogether. Oh, just no. <laughs> nothing. What? So, uh, um, apparently the, the fine folks either at Amazon or Vizio were like, well, we can send a technician out to take a look at it in like another week. And then it'll be, and he was like, no, I just, I just got it. You're, you're giving this back. So we boxed yeah. it back up. You sent it back. And I got a picture uh, last night of the new TV that he just went to Best Buy or Target or somewhere and purchased and brought home. So it's also 65 inches. Um, I think his was a mm. – um, oh, I forgot what brand. Sony maybe? Well, anyway, I, I can Sony. recommend the OLED screen. I was very taken aback by the quality. It was he got the really, – can't right. tell. Yeah, OLED is the HDR, way to go. Ultra HD, I don't know, whatever. It's not so, OLED, I don't think, but no. I have oh, one okay. big takeaway from this conversation. What's uh, that? 
Nick, do you guys measure TVs in inches over there? Yeah. Yeah. They also have their miles per hour. Also. Yeah, they do miles per hour, just too. They're very confused. Yeah, we do. They do a little bit of everything. Even more so than us. At least we're pretty consistently imperial. They're like, we're just pick and choose. We're always imperial. wrong versus them just sometimes choosing the wrong yeah. exactly. But let's, let's do weight in, in stone. And now we're not in the European uh, Union anymore. Oh, yeah. We can go back <laughs> can to um, stones, pounds, ounces, uh, if you want to. So that's cool. Hmm. And our passports are going to be blue again. Hey, blue's the way to go on the passports. Definitely. Yeah, that's ours. Yeah. Sorry. Anyway, Sorry, so that's that's know. me. <laughs> it's been an exciting week, but uh, I I'm sure we'll have a, another show before long. So I must crack yeah. on with the next plane tale. So. Yes, you shall. But why don't okay, you wait good. until we're finished with this one before you start working on it? Oh, okay. Fahrenheit. Okay. Yeah, let's mention it, Gubby. Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> All right, carry on. Um, Sorry, Nick Camacho. I, last time, uh, stupid. Yeah, I can actually say now, you know, what have you been doing since the last show? Because you were with us on the last show when I was in Wichita. We recorded 504. And yep. um, now it's a little over a week later. And what have you been up to, sir? So, uh, in addition to my day job, I've still been working on my airplane. Like mm-hmm. we mentioned last time, I have a, a beach debonair, which is like a straight tail bonanza, an early straight tail bonanza. And uh, I've been doing a fairly significant. Uh, overhaul or retrofit uh, i took the panel out and i um, made a new panel and i put in a, a bunch of new avionics in it and while i had it all apart for that i was like oh i'm gonna touch a few other things and that turned into kind of a long-term project so it's been down for uh, over a year now uh, getting closer to two years unfortunately but um, i had everything all ready to go at the beginning of december i got it all put back together and went to uh run the engine and the fuel pump didn't work or the engine wouldn't run on the engine driven fuel pump, I guess. So uh, we troubleshot that and it turned out that uh, a diaphragm in one of the fuel system components had actually uh, dried dried out and gotten hard because I hadn't run the engine for so long, which is a sad state. But uh, sent all that stuff out, got it all back and ran the airplane again on Thursday afternoon and uh, it all ran fine. So I'm hoping maybe in the next week or two I'll uh, be flying the airplane for the first time in a while. So that'll be exciting. A debonair pilot nice. and a debonair. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So that's uh, my main thing. And then mm-hmm. uh, me and my dad have a little fabrication business on the side. And uh, just before Christmas, we got a new machine, a little uh, CNC laser. So I've been Ooh. playing around with that, getting it all set up um, to use for some of the stuff that we that we make. Like so aside yeah. from the uh, family, that's kind of been taking all the time. Okay. Can you do uh, like uh, engraving on metal and that kind of thing with that CNC laser? So it so it can't do metal. Um, okay. It uh, it does. I can engrave uh, coated metals. So like anodized aluminum and stuff like that. I can basically mm-hmm. burn the, the anodized off, but can't etch into metal. But it'll basically do everything else. So we're going to use it for um, wood. It'll etch and cut wood and acrylic and. Um, make placards and do that sort of thing. Well, be careful where you point that thing. <laughs> Take your eye out. Yeah. Um, excellent. All right. And then as um, anything else, Nick? Nope. Okay. Um, I didn't want to cut you off. Um, so as Steph had um, mentioned, uh, 
got a chance to uh, meet with her on a trip that I had picked up. And the reason why it took, I, I do apologize for all of you listening to the podcast. It, it seems like it took forever for me to get the thing edited and published. And that's because I thought that by picking up this, um, I had like a four day break, uh, between trips on my original schedule. And so the trip that I was on when we did the last show, I got home on a Friday and then I had Saturday off and, uh, did my, uh, normal singing on Saturday afternoon. And then I thought I was going to have the next three days off before I was to report for my next, uh, trip. But the, um, airline Acme is uh, really hurting for, pilots to go out there and fly trips. As you know, we're having a kind of a mess of delays and cancellations, all the, all the airlines here in the U S and I thought, well, I'll go in and help them out, especially because they're going to be paying me double, uh, overtime rates for flying the trip. And it was a three day trip that, uh, I went out on and I thought, well, I could just, yeah, sure. I have this editing to do, but I can probably squeeze that in, uh, amongst all these days of flying. And I was wrong. Uh, it just took me forever to get it, uh, finished. So I do apologize for that. But, um, anyway, so on that trip, uh, that I picked up the overtime trip, I was able to see Steph and then, um, what else? Oh, uh, flew another trip, my regularly scheduled trip Wednesday through Friday. And then on Friday, I got a chance to see some of our fine community members, um, one of whom is in the, well, I think both are in the uh, live were, audience, or at least were. Uh, Armando uh, happened to be in Atlanta doing some um, a training program at, uh, at, we'll just say Acme Airlines. And um, so I uh, rung him up and said, hey, um, I'm going to meet up with uh, – a gentleman named James Graves Brown and his lovely wife, Sarah, who happened to be here from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And uh, James had a birthday in December and his big birthday gift was to fly out to Atlanta International Airport, stay at the Renaissance Concourse Hotel. That might sound familiar because that's where we did the 500th uh, celebration, 500th episode celebration. And, uh, they got. They came here to do plane spotting, and uh, they flew out on Thursday. I think it was when they arrived. So Friday, I swung by the Renaissance Concourse, picked them up, and we went to the uh, the Corner Tavern in Hapeville and had a lovely meal. And Armando joined us as well. So we had Armando and James and Sarah and myself, and we had a great time. And uh, Liz, before you ask, no. I did not take any pictures, and no, I did not do a recording. Sorry. <laughs> I don't even think of it anymore. I don't know why. Uh, hey, if I ever meet up with you somewhere out there, don't be shy. Say, hey, Jeff, can we do a recording so you can play it on the Getting to Know Us segment in the show? And then I'll go, hey, that's a great idea. We'll do that. But uh, anyway, oh, Armando's still here with us. Sarah is a keeper. James, what a great birthday gift. Yeah, yeah. Uh, lovely, lovely um a long-suffering wife of an aviation geek, Sarah is. Yeah, but uh, I can tell that uh, they love each other very much. And so, yeah, I really had a lot of fun with them and, Arm and Armando, I guess. 
Um, just kidding, Armando. <laughs> Armando's a great guy. Armando's going to be like, Armando, all right, I'm out of here. Bye. Yeah. He's, no, no, he he's knows. He's some stick. He knows. I love him very much. I, I love you. That's we all a love Armando. Private, yeah. private joke. Say that again louder, uh, Jeff. I am. By the way, I should mention, I am not in, even though uh, Radio Roger thought I would be, and I thought I might be as well, uh, up at the cabin in the uh, mountains on Lake Burton. Uh, but no, I am here in the not yet sold residence, uh, the original, um, the OG um, headquarters, APG headquarters, uh, Studio 1A. And that is because of the aforementioned or previously mentioned um, Izzy, uh, sorry, hello, uh, winter storm uh, that is going on. And up at the cabin, um, I thought, hmm, we're kind of in the... Uh, I think they call that the Blue Ridge Escarpment or something like that. It's something to do with the geography and the Blue Ridge Mountains, part of the Appalachians, and uh, the way the wedge uh, weather system cold that's going through and the cold air. And, yeah, all yeah. kinds of weird stuff going Just on. Just throw out those terms. They mention them a lot on the weather. Yeah, well, uh, it's great. Makes what was that again? Cold air damming. Cold air damming. Wedge. wedge. Uh, wedging. Isn't wedging. that what bullies do to you at ooh, school? Hang on. Anyway, so I'm thinking uh, it's it's going to be beautiful up here uh, at the cabin, but uh, because they're mentioning uh, the possibility of uh, icing as well at the cabin, I'm thinking, yeah, the power is probably going to. Your cabin fail. doesn't have anti-icing. No, it does not. <laughs> and uh, so I, I have a camera on the on the front porch. I don't know if you guys can see that. Or oh yeah, not. yeah, got that. Nice and um, snowy. So you can see, oh, and this pretty. is much. This is earlier this morning after the sun had come up, and there's some. We can't some, read. It won't focus on the writing. Those okay. Have the to tell us what it says. Uh, well, this, what what the message from my camera says: device is offline. Please check your internet <laughs> connection or power cycle the camera. So, in other words, power, <laughs> no power. is off, and the internet <laughs> is not there. And so, I'm so glad that right. I made the decision yesterday afternoon to drive down here to avoid that from happening so i'll probably stay here another night and let things settle down up there and hopefully the roads to uh dry out and ice melt and all that kind of stuff so um yeah that's what we're experiencing here in the entire well it, uh, this storm i think has pretty much covered all of the oh, it's country. covered all of like the midwest like it started in kind started of like the in, midwest yeah it well, started in the pacific right. northwest so if i want to know where the midwest is i just have to find izzy is that right then i'll yeah. know where the well, it's midwest already moved is. on from yeah, the midwest past it. Oh. but like it, there were there was a lot of snow in oh man which town in iowa i forget some place got like 14 cedar rapids or well, well des moines uh, for sure des moines. Had a lot of, yeah des moines yeah. got like 14 inches of, of snow and then it mm-hmm. moved down into like missouri arkansas Mm-hmm. Uh, Kansas. Um, did anyone get 16 inches? <laughs> um, the mountains of North Carolina are going to see more than that, actually. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah, 16 so inches, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you got to give me a, a like a couple of <laughs> seconds notice that you're going to say something like that so I can be ready for it. Sorry. Guys yeah. need a little lead time there. Yeah. You, better, you should script this show better is all I can I know. Say. It's completely unscripted, by the way. Well, not completely. Hey, let's, go, let's go on to the last cover art. Liz now. tries okay. um, to, to steer us in the right direction. And then yeah, she is. In she fact, she's to, steering me like right hurting, now. It's like herding hurting, yes. hurting cattle. Get on with the show, Jeff. Okay. Uh, so, Liz, throw it up there. There we go. 
the cover art from the last episode, episode 504, entitled Floating Heads. Uh, so, of course, we have uh, uh, some lovely floating heads with all kinds of little, um, I don't know, uh, captions, in- Captions, I guess, on, on our foreheads. Um, Nick Camacho is being ironed. Yeah, Nick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that does that's not a, look. That's a selfie, that is. I, I thought it was so novel, I just had to include it. <laughs> and Rick, yeah, is going crazy with his iron, apparently, uh, ironing yeah. the side of Nick. He's attacking C's. Nick. He well, you know what he's like. He, yeah. He's a, um, a terrorist iron. Ironer? I don't know what you quite <laughs> describe in the Rogue. He's a rogue ironer. A rogue ironer, yeah. Yeah. Rogue, yes. uh, yeah. And uh, Nick, Nick, that's an interesting um, photo of you there. Uh, you look a little confused. Yeah. and You almost look and like you should be like an, in an underpass somewhere. Like unshaven exactly. and like, yeah. or ungroomed. Yeah. Uh, that's what I normally wake up like. Oh, <laughs> Poor Jilly. Oh, my God. Yeah, Especially. I'm just very confused as to what's going on with this oh, crew. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't blame you. Uh, of course, Steph is over there in the other corner going, wee. <laughs> well, that's definitely yeah. yeah, and uh, apparently I've had a little, uh, a little gas, a little bloating uh, there. Uh, head bloat. Head bloat. <laughs> Get that all the time. <laughs> and uh, and Liz in the middle of it going, oh no. <laughs> anyway, a lot. yes. Um, anyway, great, great cover art. Thank you, uh, thank you, Nick. What now? How did that? Oh, that's right. Because I was wearing a dark black shirt and it was a black background, and I just had my oh, head floating. The very around. same shirt, if I'm not. Actually, mistaken. this is a this is a, a, a very similar, a little bit different it's color. A, this is a navy blue version of the, he's of got the black. The same shirts in multiple um, yeah. ver, uh, varieties okay. of black. So I'm I am trying to uh, <laughs> I'm trying to, to Steve Jobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Just the uniform. <laughs> hey, it worked for him. Um, yeah, true. so I'm, I am actually trying to come up with some kind of a scheme to reduce the number of, uh, clothing items that I own, because if I'm going to do my full-time RV living, I, I'm not going to have a lot of room for a lot of clothing. So reducing your clothing I'm, footprint. I'm just going to have my uniform. I'm just going to wear watch, black like, turtlenecks. Minimalists, the, that documentary on Netflix okay. or something. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, Steph seems to be able to pack an entire wardrobe. Pardon me, into a tiny backpack. So, and then fly around the world with it. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. Anyway. All right. Liz. Well, we're not going to get into that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's, let's get, let's move on, shall we, uh, with the coffee fund. And I just have to go like this and hit this. Here we go. Johnny, how much more coffee? I love coffee. I love tea. I love the tea. Sounds beautiful, Liz. And this time, I'm going to play. I'm going to include it in the uh, audio-only podcast. I was trying to harmonize at at the what I actually hear when we're recording the show, and you'll see why I was having trouble. Singing. <laughs> okay. Anyway, the Coffee Fund is your way to support the show financially, and uh, a couple of different ways to do that. Uh, one is called the Coffee Fund Classic 
method. And since the last episode, hey, Jenny in Rome sent in a, a recurring contribution. And then Donna Rose and Mazuts Karim sent in um, donations as well. Very nice Mazuts donations. Was Thank you. Mazuts was in the chat room earlier. Mazuts was in the chat room earlier. I don't know if he's still there with us. If you are, raise your hand, please, and say something. Say hello to everybody. Uh, thank you very much for your continued support, Mazuts. Not definitely not the first time that he has contributed to the show, and so we thank you very much. And Donna Rose, thank you as well. Um, and then we also have um, a funding mechanism called Patreon. You can become a patron of the show by signing up with them. And um, here. oh, there he is, Mazuts is waving hi. Thank you, Mazuts. Anyway, so check it out by going over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee and learn all about how you can be part of our coffee fund cadre or coffee bar club. You'll be glad you did, and we will too. Just send your cash. Absolutely. Captain, incoming message. Although, don't send cash because I don't think that will work with the two ways to do the coffee. You can send me cash. I don't mind. You can send Nick cash. Actually, next time I see with, see you in person, you can give me, no, just kidding. Um, (laughs) You've got just over 10 minutes to the two hour mark. Oh, okay. So we can, uh, we have 10 minutes before our, where we, uh, the point in the show that we usually play the, uh, plain tale. So let's uh, see if we can knock out a couple of uh, feedbacks here, or at least one. Uh, this is one that we were going to do on the last episode, but we just ran out of time. And uh, this is from Gubby, and I think he is He's still in, the chat, yeah. in our chat room. At least we I saw him there earlier. Yep, he's right there. Okay, great. Yeah, I and, tried to kick him out, but he wouldn't go. Oh, okay. Mm. Mm. It's persistent. Yes. Yeah. So he's he's our uh, Englishman who is flying for the Royal Canadian Air Force. Figure that. Don't ask me how that works. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it's like an Englishman flying for the Royal um, Australian Air Force. Uh, It might be actually. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, So she says. Some some more snowy ops. Oh, very appropriate for the weather that we're receiving here in the southeast. Attached are a couple of video. Oh, this time from the North Pole, he said. Attached are a couple of videos. One is of me flying to the base, and we're not holding hands on the throttles at the end. Seems like he's being a little bit defensive. Uh, the other is of me getting airborne again, taken from an Air National Guard uh, LC-130H model. Temperatures were usually minus 15 C, minus 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Yikes. Wait a minute. Minus 15 is not minus 60. No, no. That's not right. He didn't do his math right. Yeah. Minus oh, 15. No. Is... And he was, he was the one making comments. He on was about Fahrenheit. <laughs> <laughs> minus 40 is the same in each. It's five scale. degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, five degrees. Five. A little not bit different 60. than minus 60. <laughs> Oh, anyway, um, here, should I play the uh, video? Yeah, just play the video. We'll talk okay. about his math and temperature scale okay. skills later. We'll, we'll make fun of him uh, blame Google. shortly. Blame Google. Um, blame Google. Okay, yeah, sure, Gubby. Uh, oh, you know what? I didn't have this video set up. So here, let me uh, find it. Gubby 1. Here we go. Open. And here it is. Boy, it's a noisy airplane. Uh, we're looking through the jump seat area, I guess, of the cockpit, uh, looking forward through the windscreen and 
the two pilots, the the good one sitting on the left uh, and the, the other one. The handsome pilots, yes. <laughs> yeah, Gubby is sitting on the right, I think, and uh, they got some uh, HUDs up, um, heads-up display, and we're flying into the North Pole, I guess. Um, is he going to stand on the other bloke's leg? I think so, yes. You said they're not holding hands. Well, wait a minute. Here well, at the very end, you'll like see them. Looks like he's his leg. They, they will... Um, they will be holding hands at the end. They're cold up there. They have to keep each other warm. Yes, Liz says it's cold up there. You have to keep each other warm. <laughs> and by the way, I think this is called. Um, I don't know if you could hear that or not. I'll have to play it. Once is that, we have that uh, is that patches of mist and fog as well as snow? I don't know. Not very no, nice, does it? Okay. Oh, it just calls out fifty, huh? That's just it. 50. Oh, God. Okay. Just <laughs> they they can only afford the Look at um, that. Oh. <gasps> oh, they are old. The fire only hands. calls out five hundred. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Guess it figures after five hundred you're on your own. You're on your own. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> All right, they're coming to a I uh, love it. That's great. They've just landed and they're coming to a stop on the runway and uh, and now they're kissing each other. That's sweet. Thank you, Gubby. It's so, <laughs> so lovely. That's really nice. Yeah. It's very um, endearing and heartwarming. Yes, Aww. it is. And we also have another one uh, this time from the uh, viewpoint. Oh, that's not the right thing, Jeffrey. Uh, let me let me do the slides accurate. first, and then you. Can okay, do the different. slides. <laughs> Good idea. Okay, there's um, the uh, beautiful C seventeen. Does look uh, quite snowy, doesn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And another Great view of it. Here. Yeah, very nice. And okay. that's it. Okay. Um, yeah. Let's play the second. Wait a minute. Where did it go? Hmm. Is it this one? No, I think I, we just played that one. Hang on. No, next one. Not that one. Okay. Oh, no. Well. Wait a second. Hang on. Right again. This yeah, might. Taxiing. Yeah, that's good. No, that's good. He's taxiing to take off. Okay. Oh, there's oh, Gubby yeah, giving us a safe. thumbs up. Oh, what happened there? Nope. We didn't get oh, that was here. the that was the very end. Okay, hang on. Okay, remove from studio and let me try this one more time. Maybe I picked the wrong. Oh, I know what happened. I selected the wrong movie. That's what I did. Sorry. Okay. And here we go. This is the uh, Air National Guard uh, 130H model. And then look in the background. Look at that C-17 taking off. Ooh. Nice. Blow them away, Gabby. And going overhead. Ah, nice. Very pretty. Very nice. Okay, so then he tells us um, a little bit about the place they were doing those operations. And um, I, I wasn't sure exactly how to pronounce this word, a K-I-K-Q-I-K-I-Q-T-A-A-L-U-K. Uh, so I have a couple of different versions of the way to pronounce this. Oh, not that. That's a good translation. That one. That's uh, that's the in dog language. <laughs> that's the, yes. <laughs> okay, here we go. Okay, or. Chikiktaluk. Ooh, how about this one? Chikiktaluk. That's my favorite. Chikiktaluk. 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 
Um, Sriwijaya. Anyway, yeah. Oh, well, I'm not going to find it. Uh, he says, I saw a 499 in the uh, Airbus A340 landing in the Antarctic. Thought I'd share some video of the Canucks doing something similar. But this time up north in the Arctic, the Canadian Air Forces, the CAF, operate the world's most northerly at the world's most northerly permanently inhabited place in the world. Canadian Forces Station Alert. It's a signals intelligence intercept facility once home to over 200 personnel, now near 100. It's been a place since the 1950s in the region of Nunavut. Alert is the northernmost continuously inhabited place in the world. It takes its name from HMS Alert, which wintered 10 kilometers east of the present station off what is now Cape Sheridan. Each year, the base is resupplied by air. The operation is called Op Box Top. Fuel, food, equipment, and personnel are flown up to the base, which is Charlie Yankee Lima Tango, onto the gravel snow ice runway, which is 5,500 feet long. It's a challenging approach and landing onto the runway, always done as full of fuel and cargo as possible. Op Box Top is, a, is infamous for the crash of Box Top 22, a C-130 that crashed a uh, controlled flight into terrain 10 nautical miles southwest of the base on October 30, 1991. Five died as a result. The film depicting the incident, Ordeal in the Arctic, starring Richard Chamberlain, was released in 1993. The wreckage can still be seen and is the site of a memorial to those who perished. In 2020, I completed my second box stop operating out of Thule Air Force Base in Greenland. We were joined by the Royal Canadian Air Force uh, C-130Js from CFB Trenton and an LC-130H from the 109th Air National Guard airlift wing based in Schenectady, New York. They were using the op to train for their upcoming Antarctic mission. We have... We had a fun and sometimes challenging two weeks flying hundreds of thousands of pounds of fuel, food, and equipment up north. And uh, he says, I was unable to listen to APG 500 live, but I'm working through it as I type. Great show. Keep it up. That's what she said. Gubby. <laughs> yeah, Good so, job, Gubby. Uh, did you show the, um, the map of the... Uh, I did. Okay. Santa lives up there. I love that um, little uh, notation on the on the map. And of course, we saw the uh, right at the top of Greenland. There, that's Greenland. That's yeah, sweet. and uh, nice picture of Gubby um, in front of all the signs at uh, Alert. Yep. And uh, yeah, I didn't see that one. Did I not conclude that, that one? Oh shoot, I didn't put that one in there. Sorry. Anyway, uh, if you want to check that out, please. Look in the show notes, and then you'll see all the photos that Gubby included. So thank so you a lot, Gubby. only three minutes left yeah. to two hours, so do you want to go to the plane tail now? Um, let's do this one first, and then okay. we'll hit the okay. plane tail right after this. Uh, this is uh, from Justin Beaverhausen. Uh, wait a minute. Hang on. Uh, uh, nice beaver. Yeah, exactly. Nice beaver. Thank you. <laughs> I just had it stuffed. <laughs> I'm a little behind with the episode. I hope you don't mind that, Justin, wherever the camera is. There it is. Um, I'm a little behind with the episodes. I only now watched number 500 and have some feedback slash ideas. Only if you don't have any serious feedback to cover. Yeah, we never do. So here we go. Yeah, fits uh, right in. First, thing for, first things first. I love the show. 
It makes one feel connected to the exciting lives of airline pilots. Is he being sarcastic? Hmm. For the longest time, I wanted to become a cost position, but decided against it when I was not chosen for the ab initio program of the local airline here. Uh, I decided to pursue my second big interest, business. This brings me to the actual reason for my mail. Listening to episode 500, I have some ideas for cost reductions and additional revenue generation. Uh, Here's the first one. Start charging for drinks. Dr. Steph, Rick, Nick, three people times two beers per episode at $5. That's $30 right there. Hmm. That's a good idea. Uh, the 500 rep episode recap was very popular. Why not do a recap every 10 episodes? <laughs> By recycling content, you save many production costs. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, all the salary costs. Yeah, all the salary. Yeah, no kidding. Mm-hmm. You really save a lot of money there. Um, divide your podcast into three parts and release them individually. If Harry Potter or Pirates of the Caribbean has taught us anything then you can make a lot more money out of your content if you individually release it. Hmm. Although we don't really charge for the show, so that's not going to work. Save on accommodation. Do away with fancy lakeside studios or exotic (laughs) international UK hideaways. There you go. That'll help. No, don't get rid of my studio. (laughs) Well, we'll have to see. Uh, Four pilots to do an episode? Is that necessary? Couldn't you do with one? And if anything goes wrong, one of the listeners can pitch in. Modern recording equipment is so advanced, literally anyone can operate it. (laughs) True. (laughs) Well, that's not really true. Uh, He hasn't Um, seen your recording equipment. Yeah, and and I'm just going to go here and make sure that I actually did hit the record button. Yes, I did. (laughs) Because Nick and I did not. Yeah, okay. Well, that's all right. Yeah, we Uh, talked about it and then failed to actually. It's important to talk about. Actually, I didn't start the recording until after Radio Rogers' intro. Oops. Yeah, I looked at one. I thought the same thing. Oops. Um, let's see. Now I'm going to go back to here. Okay. Um, part. Oh, wait a minute. No, most of your yeah, most of your crew has a high seniority, which comes with higher costs, etc. Replacing them with more junior staff will lower your cost base. I'm sure that no. there are some misdemeanors, but if you look closely, uh, that way you you even avoid severance packages. I oh, see there why pl- Nixie is here now. There are plenty yeah, of misdemeanors. Yeah. That's it. He's... And that's why Rick was ironing I can his feel head. my place uh, becoming tenuous. <laughs> yeah. You, I have the most seniority yeah. here. Yeah, well, absolutely. And the highest likelihood of the misdemeanors with all that military he, lifestyle back in Possibly. There. You can't pin it on me. Hopping around. They weren't changing his duty station because they needed him to fly an airplane at a different place. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, all those wives I abandoned. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, um, this is a good one. Part, part of your crew is in the developed world, and health insurance is standard. But for the U.S.-based staff, this is a huge cost position. I think at least for Dr. Steph, you could cancel it. <laughs> She's a doctor, so she can take care of herself. Oh, and, absolutely. Yeah, fair enough. And Rick is in Miami, which is close to Cuba. <laughs> I guess he's just suggesting go to Cuba. Yeah, Yeah, free healthcare in Cuba. (laughs) And think about how healthy he would be swimming the ninety miles each time he had to go see his doctor. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. you have to be in shape for that. Yeah, never mind the jellyfish 
all the way across. <laughs> he says, oh, never forget. Wasn't plugged in. Never forget. Our employees are our greatest asset and even more so our single greatest cost position. <laughs> if you if you want, I can send you a PowerPoint showing how Acme could become 600% more profitable and triple its <laughs> stock price. <laughs> Have you thought about relocating to the Cayman Islands? <laughs> Ooh, no, but that's nice. where I register my boat. Oh, wait. Yeah. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> is there, is there an airfield there? Yes. Yeah. Oh, let's all go to the Cayman Islands, guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Fine. Bye. Sounds nice. Uh-oh. Right. Yeah. Wait, no, wait till we finish <laughs> oh, the show. Oh, no, stuff. they canceled all the flights out of Charlotte today. Uh, oh, damn. Okay. <laughs> I'll go Why? tomorrow. Going tomorrow. Anyway, Justin says, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and keep the belly up. Uh, thank you, Justin. That really made me. That really made me chuckle when I read it. I'm uh, sure first. you don't mean that. I had a good laugh out of this one. We don't want to go salaries. belly up, do we? No, no. Yeah, oh, I thought you were hmm. in business, Justin. Yeah, wait a minute. Yeah. That's the wrong term to use. And no, Liz, he doesn't understand quite our cost structure here. Podcast. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> Nobody does. And I want to keep it that way. And, yeah. <laughs> All right. With that, I think it is now time, actually past time, for us to uh, play this week's installment of The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. And this one is entitled Sidewinders and Sparrows. So take it away, old pilot. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. Sidewinders and Sparrows. A sidewinder is a nasty reptile which is formerly named Crotalus serastes, but also goes by the more descriptive title, the horned or sidewinder rattlesnake. It's generally found in the regions of the southwest United States and northwest Mexico. They're also found in the Mojave Desert, where they're known locally but slightly unimaginatively as the Mojave Desert Sidewinder. I only mention this as the area is also home to the Naval Air Weapons Station, China Lake. The vast airspace there, larger than the state of Rhode Island, is jointly controlled by Edwards Air Force Base and Fort Irwin. The link will become apparent shortly. Crotalus serastes is a pit viper, renowned for its speed of travel. At 18 miles an hour, which is nearly 30 kilometers an hour, it is by a considerable margin the fastest snake in the world. It achieves this record by an unusual form of motion known as lateral undulation. Simply put, it anchors the rear of its body in the desert sand and then thrusts forward the front portion through the air. Once in contact with the sand again, the rear part catches up. This action minimizes contact with the hot sand, and it is practiced by several species of snake, but none as speedily as the sidewinder. The common sparrow isn't nearly as dramatic as a desert-living pit viper, but it has certainly become more successful as a species. It's a small part of the Passeridae genus Passa, and being a small plump brown or greyish bird, they're quite unremarkable. A seed-eater, they've been around since the early Miocene period, about 23 million years ago, and have colonised every continent except Antarctica. 
They can be found from Buenos Aires to Alaska, New Zealand to Cape Town, and are the most widespread birds in the world. Despite their obvious differences, sidewinders and sparrows often went together, because they aren't just the names of flying creatures and slithering serpents. They are weapons of war known as missiles. For years I thought a missile was named because it missed its target, as opposed to a hitile. I got this from the joke put about by the rapier missile operators, as because of the rapier's accuracy, it only had a contact fuse, so needed to hit the target to detonate. Historically, the word comes from the Latin, missilis, meaning that may be thrown such as a stone, arrow, javelin, or bullet. From the Latin, the French altered it into the common missile, which dates back to its use in 1636, referring to a projectile. In more recent times, in military parlance, a missile is described as a self-propelled weapon, the trajectory of which can be adjusted after launch. This separates it from dumb weapons, such as artillery rockets, that are purely ballistic in nature. Of course, those unguided rockets are the father, indeed the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of modern missiles. Their origin is recorded in the 10th century Song Dynasty of China, when gunpowder-powered arrows were fired in the hundreds from launchers. As early as 1232, rockets with warheads made of iron pots filled with gunpowder could devastate an area of 2,000 feet around 600 metres with shrapnel. The Fire Drake Manual, written by a Chinese artillery officer, even describes multi-stage rockets. The Mongols adopted the technology and their use has been recorded in the Middle East, India, Korea and Europe from the 1300s onwards. In 1792, the first iron-cased rockets were used by Tipu Sultan, the ruler of Mysore in India, against the British East India Company. They had a range of over a mile, and after the Sultan's eventual defeat, 600 launchers, 700 serviceable rockets and 9,000 empty rockets were found. Some of the rockets had pierced cylinders to allow them to act like incendiaries, while some had iron points or steel blades bound to the bamboo. These blades caused the rockets to become very unstable towards the end of their flight, resulting in the blades spinning around like flying scythes and cutting down all in their path. The British went on to use the technology to develop the Congreve rocket, employed by the Royal Navy in the Napoleonic Wars. Our interest is in a more sophisticated theatre of war, when fighters used rockets to engage other aircraft, and it wasn't until the Battle of Kalkin Gol when a Japanese Nakajima Ki-27 fighter was hit by a salvo of rockets fired by a Polikarpov I-16 that the first kill was recorded. Although a total of 16 fighters and three bombers were apparently brought down during the conflict by this weapon, 
the RS-28 rockets used were unguided. The usefulness of such weapons was very limited, as they could be easily dodged by an agile aircraft. That didn't stop their development during the Second World War to counter the massed Allied formations of bombers, and the German R-4M was highly successful, albeit too late to affect the outcome of the war. Their name was an abbreviation of Rakete 4 Kilogram Meinkopf, or Rocket 4 Kilogram Minehead. The rocket's disadvantage included the drag of carrying them in an underwing part. The advantages meant that overall they were lighter than an equivalent heavy cannon with all its ammunition. The R-4Ms were supersonic and carried a powerful explosive warhead that would guarantee to bring down a fighter with only one hit. If a fighter launched all 24 at about half a mile, they would hurtle towards a bomber formation at over 1,100 miles an hour and saturate an area 50 by 100 feet, almost guaranteeing a hit. Advances in electronics would spell the end of unguided rockets in air-to-air combat, but they had a last hurrah with the Air 2 Genie. The Soviet Air Force tactics during the Cold War were believed to consist of large regiment-sized formations of bombers that would sweep across NATO borders to devastate North America and European countries. One of the defences devised to counter these mass attacks was an unguided air-launched missile that carried a one-and-a-half-kiloton nuclear warhead. Carried by fighters such as the F-89 Scorpion and the F-101 Voodoo, with future conversions of the F-104 Starfighter, the F-102 Delta Dagger and even the English Electric Lightning were considered. 3,000 Genie rockets were constructed. Fired from about six miles from an enemy formation, the Genie would accelerate to Mach 3.3 for a 12-second flight time, followed by a timed detonation of the warhead that was expected to devastate everything within a 1,000 feet, about 300 metres from it. There was only ever one live trial of this weapon, Operation Plumbob, which was held over the Yucca Flats within the Nevada test site. A group of five United States Air Force officers volunteered to stand in their light summer uniforms beneath the explosion. To prove that the weapon was safe for use over populated areas, and chase aircraft flew through the airburst ten minutes after detonation. Those in the air received the highest doses of gamma and neutron radiation. These weapons remained an option for the United States and Canadian Air Forces until as late as 1985. The era of guided air-to-air missiles started shortly after World War II when the Firebird subsonic radar-guided missile was developed in 1947. This was pretty quickly rendered obsolete by the Hughes AIM-4 Falcon, which entered service with the USAF in 1956. Designed to engage slow-manoeuvring bombers, 
When it was used during the Vietnam War, it proved pretty ineffective against agile fighters, and lacking a proximity fuse, it needed to strike its target to detonate. Only five kills were recorded. It was soon superseded by the AIM-9 Sidewinder, called after its grounded namesake from the deserts below the test ranges, because both were capable of detecting the heat of their prey. The United States Navy were responsible for the project, and they would subcontracted production to companies such as Raytheon and General Electric. The Sidewinder missile used many advanced techniques to solve the problem of getting from fighter to target. Early versions used materials such as lead sulphide and indium antimonide, which detect the infrared heat sources at different wavelengths, covering both the exhaust plume and the hot jet pipe, and they were cooled to increase sensitivity. The IR radiation entered the seeker head through a series of mirrors, which focused them onto a small rotating disc called a chopper, or more correctly, the reticule. It was then refocused by a lens before reaching the IR-sensitive detector. All the detector did was register the heat source, or not. It was the chopper that did all the guidance. It looked like a pizza, with a few alternate slices removed from one side. These gaps would allow the IR to pass through. As the chopper rotated at around 100 times a second, the source might first appear at the top, the 12 o'clock. As the disc span, the presence of the target heat source would be chopped a few times before disappearing as the large opaque segment obscured it. The signal would then appear as flash, 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 followed by a blank period. If the target was at the bottom, or six o'clock of the disc, the signal would be reversed, a blank period followed by four flashes. In this way, the target orientation could be determined. The frequency modulation of the target would be found by the length of the pulses. At the edge of the pizza where the crust is, the pulses would be long, a low frequency, but as the target approached the juicy centre, they would get shorter and become higher in frequency. The mirrors could deflect to see the target off boresight, and the guidance system would pass instructions to the wings to move and steer the missile. The front end was where all the electronics and power for the wings was packed, so the rear wings didn't move. They just provided stability through an ingenious but very simple system. On the rear wing tips, there were rotating discs with little notches on to catch the wind. They were housed in a little hinged control vane that could freely deflect left or right. Like a water wheel in a river, when the missile moved through the air, the stabilizers would spin up, and if the missile began turning, the gyroscopic force on the discs, precessed through 90 degrees, would force the vanes to move, countering the spin by creating an opposing aerodynamic force. Behind the seeker head was the guidance system, the brains of the device. It would have been very simple for the missile to just fly straight at the heat source, 
called our pure pursuit line, but this has disadvantages. Unless a shot is from directly behind, flying pure pursuit means the missile flies a curved path, particularly if the target is trying to evade. It also requires a lot of turn at the end of flight to make the final corner when the missile will be at low energy. Instead, the guidance logic used sightline spin, the rate of angular movement of the target, to predict where it would be in a few seconds and head off in that direction. This was called full lead prediction. It was a shorter path than pure pursuit, but had problems as that imaginary point in space where the intercept would occur could be moved very rapidly by target evasion, which would deplete the missile's energy. The compromise was a combination of the two, called proportional navigation. Having got to our unlucky target, the missile now had to know when to go bang. This was achieved by using one of the triggers. The ideal result would be if the missile actually struck the target. The impact would send a firing pulse to the warhead, and so in addition to the kinetic force of impact, there would be an explosive one as well. If the missile missed, it only needed to be close enough to trigger the passive infrared or active radar fuse, which would detonate the warhead, as its beam was cut by the target. It was designed to occur just before the missile passed the enemy aircraft to give the warhead time to get to maximum effectiveness. Warheads varied from an expanding rod type to blast fragmentation. The expanding rod system was made up of a circular tube of steel rods that were alternately joined at the front and then the back. When the warhead, usually around 10 pounds, 4.5 kilos of high explosive, went off, the rods would expand out into a big circular buzzsaw that would cut through the target. The blast fragmentation type would act just like a big hand grenade. Initially only usable when nearly directly behind a target, improvements resulted in an all-aspect capability for the Sidewinder. The Sidewinder was a short-range combat missile, so for longer-range engagements, in conjunction with the Douglas Aircraft Company, the Navy developed a semi-active radar-guided missile, which became known as the Sparrow. The AIM-7 family has developed into a highly effective medium-range missile and is only now being phased out in favour of the AIM-120 AMRAAM. The Sparrow is a big missile. It weighs around 400 pounds, nearly 200 kilograms, and is some 12 feet, about 3.7 meters in length. Not having a radar transmitter itself, for guidance, it relies on the firing aircraft to illuminate the target with a continuous beam of carry-away radiation, which limits the firer's situational awareness. Once locked on in order to put a missile in the air, they lose sight of any other radar targets they might have previously detected. However, unlike infrared, which can be dispersed by atmospheric effects, rain and cloud, etc., radar is all-weather. On the other hand, an IR source is small, whilst a radar return is large, 
which results in a much bigger mist distance and therefore requires a good radar proximity fuse and a large warhead. The all-aspect capability of the Sparrow also needs much greater complexity in guidance laws, homing capability and fusing systems, and the relatively long range of the missile gives other tactical problems. Being able to launch BVR beyond visual range raises many tactical problems, which I'll chat about in the next tale. So I'm confused. Uh, what does sparrows and sidewinders have to do with missiles? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> you need to go back and re-listen. To yeah, I think you need to start homework. that over again and, and pay attention next time. Well, you know what? I, you lost me at the um, horizontally un- undulating um, <laughs> something or other. I don't know. I just kind of started... Just, There's going to be a test. Well, that, that's just pointing. snake talk, so don't worry oh, about it. Okay. So yeah. are we now qualified weapons instructors? Um, no, that's but you, what can, I gathered. you oh. can talk about snakes, but you need to have a few of those drinks. You know, the snake bite, you need to have a few ah. of those, and then, then you'll become fluent in the subject of missiles. Fluid, fluid yeah. <laughs> Not fluent. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's an interesting stuff. Wow. I mean, that's a, and that's just probably just touching just the tip of an iceberg there when Scratching. it comes to. Yeah, that, that's yeah. kind of approaching the subject from behind, which is what most fighter pilots try to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we'll kind of no reach comment. towards uh, the more modern stuff uh, next week. But um, of course, a lot of this is very classified. So, uh, that's why I, I kind of uh, I will steer away from the technical aspects, apart from the fact that I can't remember it all. <laughs> well, it's a good thing that we don't really have that many people that listen to the show or watch it. So yeah, I think that's we're going to be exactly okay. right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Secret safe. <laughs> 36 minutes left, Jeff. 36, 36 minutes, that's all? Oh, okay. We have 36 I minutes. I know, I know. Um, well, anyway, an- another. You said we're gonna. This is gonna be part. That was part one. We're gonna do part two uh, in the future. Yes, yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll right. carry on into a bit more missile tactics and cover yeah. some of the more wacky stuff. Someone's, uh, I think, it was I hold boxes asked me to talk about the M fifty four, which is the Phoenix and just a monster of a missile. Uh, so yeah, we can touch on a few wacky ones, but mainly talking about uh, the tactics of um, employing long-range missiles against other fighters, uh, which is quite a fascinating subject all on its own. Excellent. All right. Thank you, Captain Nick, for that. And uh, we're going to move on with this feedback from Mike. Uh, I sent some feedback in on episode 496, and I think Liz picked it for the show because my last name looks pretty ridiculous. As much fun as it is, uh, as it usually is to hear Captain Jeff pronounce things, <laughs> I have to say both Captains Jeff and Steph pretty much nailed it. Well done. Nailed it. In- nailed it. All right. Um, going back to the feedback, I'm a flight test engineer, and at times we have a pretty similar work schedule to pilots. Lots of travel across many time zones, working nights, weekends, different show times every day, etc. I recall one series of tests I was supporting in Victorville, California a few years ago. 
We had to be on board the aircraft at 445 for several days in a row, and after a while, this started to take its toll. Inevitably, one crew member eventually slept through his alarm. After repeated phone calls, someone eventually managed to wake him up. The hotel we were using was quite a distance from the airport, so he didn't arrive until almost an hour later. As I watched the looks of hate, disgust, and annoyance he was showered with (laughs) as he walked to the aircraft, I vowed to never be that guy. I now set four or five alarms on two separate phones on every flight day to be sure I don't ever miss a flight. There's a long, that's a long winded way of saying or getting to my question. Have any of you ever had a crew member snooze through an alarm or forget what time to be at the aircraft? That never happens. I imagine the implications are a little different in a hub city where you might have someone on reserve to step in versus the first flight of the morning out of a small Midwestern town. In the small town, though, maybe you'd catch it earlier if they don't show up for the crew van. Yeah, all the best. And congrats on reaching 500 shows. I look forward to listening to 500 more. Thanks, Mike Grislecki. And uh, nailed it. Yeah, he gave us a pronunciation guide just in case we've forgotten how we had properly pronounced <laughs> his a, name. That's a likely possibility. Well, like Grizzlecky. No, Grizzlecky. And uh, he didn't tell us sure where the that? emphasis was to be. Yeah, well, I just I just Lecky. No, or Grizzlecky. Oh. No, 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 no. Grizzlecky. Grizzlecky. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, we so, we know Mike. We know what you meant. Yeah, sorry, Mike. Uh, Mike's easier. I must admit. Yeah, let's just call you Mike. Um, <laughs> so regarding the, um, you know, I've been very fortunate in my career. I've only missed um, a, a sign in, uh, like being late for a sign in, or or just sleeping through my alarm, or maybe not setting an alarm. One time, and that was at Dayton many years ago, and uh, I've talked about it several times on the show, but I uh, very quickly did a dry shave and water in my hair and uniform on. I was down in the lobby in like five to ten minutes. It was pretty darn quick. Um, But I have (laughs) – I usually do the opposite. I usually show up before I'm supposed to be there. Sometimes even the day before I'm supposed to be there. I've done that twice already. Have you ever shown up a week early for a dentist no. appointment? No. <laughs> I guess you have. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure it's They actually on the- felt bad. They were like, oh, we would totally see you today, except we have no appointments available whatsoever. And I'm, we're so sorry. I'm like, you're sorry. I'm the idiot who showed up a week early for my <laughs> yeah, dentist that's right. How nice I- those health professionals are. <laughs> I I did make the mistake uh, early on. I think I may have been a flight engineer at the time, so like within my first year and a half. And uh, I think it was Salt Lake City at a Red Lion. Um, and I guess I didn't check to see if the clocks in the room were actually sent on, set on the local time zone. They weren't. That old trick. Yeah, and this is before cell phones and stuff to you know set your alarm. Automatically so you updating times and things. Right. And so I just set my alarm and um, got up and showered and got dressed, went down, and it was very, very quiet down there. It was one of those early morning sign-ins, but it was even earlier morning because it, I was an hour ahead of when I was supposed to be down there. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I went back up. The, I didn't go back to sleep because I figured I don't have enough time to lie down and yeah. sleep. Make sure you don't. Uh... Yeah. 
So yeah. I had some coffee and, you know, did some reading and, you know, it was, as I said, before the cell phone, I couldn't sit there and just read, catch up on, you know, Twitter and Facebook and all yeah, those like kind of things. Yeah, like an actual book to read? Yeah, like books, what? like with words on them, pages, like what? ink. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> By the way, if, if you're interested in that sort of thing, uh, reading books, uh, we do have a library, APG library. Uh, Tiffany is our APG librarian, so you might want to check that out on the website. Anyway, um, now, you know, I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm kind of getting a pretty kind of lax when it comes to having like backup alarms and having... Uh, wake up calls and that kind of thing. Cause usually the wake up calls when I set them up are when I'm in the shower and then it like keeps ringing forever and waking everybody up that has a room <laughs> next to me. So I don't like oh, to do that. I know I don't want to, I want to wake up people. And uh, now so I just wake up people by snoring and then they just bang on the wall. <laughs> um, but uh, the uh, now I just kind of normally set, I just use my, my iPhone and set, two alarms. So that's sort of a backup, but you know, if you forget to set one or both, you know, you're going to sleep right through it. So I've been, I guess, pretty lucky that I haven't slept through and been late, uh, very often in my career. So that's my story. Um, let's see, Nick, did you do anything complicated or special to avoid, um, you know, missing, uh, no. <clears throat> yeah. the way I treated it was that my rest before flight was very important. It's the company's job to wake me up. So the company told the hotel. The hotel set the wake-up calls. And if I didn't get it, then that's the company's fault or the hotel's fault, not mine. So, uh, you know, I thought if I set an alarm and the flight's been delayed by five hours and I wake up, uh, then I'll go, well, that's, I can't get back to sleep now. How am I going to do the flight? So that was my logic. You know, you need to sleep until the call time in case the flight had been delayed uh, and so you didn't ruin your pre-flight sleep. So that's that's what I did. And it, it never actually failed. Uh, I never was late for a, a check-in uh, down route. Sometimes a bit tough if uh, the company called you out, particularly if you're on a like two-hour call out and they said, oh, someone hasn't pitched up. Can you get to the airport in an hour? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I could try. <laughs> no. I'm probably, <laughs> probably not going to make not. it. And occasionally, uh, you know, you make your best effort because you don't want to hold 350 people up who want to go from A to B. It's not good. So I'd hammer down the road, get to the uh, airport, slam it in the car park, jump on the next bus, come storming through with my bags, try and fight your way through security, everyone giving you daggers because uh, you're trying to push ahead. Uh, and then head into the check-in area and oh they're on the aircraft waiting for you it's on gate 19 run all the way down to gate 19 come on all red faced with the passengers glaring at you uh up to the front end the fo's sitting there going i've done it all it's all in the box you know so uh, like great let's go yeah, <laughs> exactly exactly so checklist. yeah Absolutely. Uh, you know, throw my suitcase somewhere and clamber in the seat and hope for the best. Yeah. But uh, no, most of the time it was fine. Uh, there are plenty of times crew members are late. You know, you get to mm -hmm. the check-in area. I mean, there's usually 16 or 17 of you there. So, you know, the chances of someone being late once a month are pretty regular. And, uh, you know, you're 
the company eventually said everyone is to be in the check-in area a quarter of an hour before you're supposed to be there. <laughs> Which kind of so goes, instead of just oh. having a supposed to be there time, just yeah, make it a supposed to be there time. But exactly, so you had a quick there. head count there, and then you'd start phoning around the rooms to you know yeah. wake girls up who, or, or boys uh, who, who had missed their call. Or slip through it, gone back to sleep, or whatever. But, you know, you you kind of reminded me of something that's important for, um, especially those um, pilot crew members out there that uh, may experience this on occasion. When, let's say, for whatever reason, somebody overslept, or maybe they forgot that they had the trip on the schedule, or or more likely. The people that are not yet there and um, are going to join you shortly are probably not the ones that were originally supposed to be there and they got called on short notice. I think it's very, very important, even though that everything is already done, like you just mentioned, um, Nick, that you walk in, everything's done, let's you know, let's go. Uh, it's very important to slow it down and say, look, sit down. I know you know you're ready to go and all that kind of stuff, but we you just take your time. Get acclimated, get your head in the right space before we do something really stupid because we're we're rushing. We're already twenty minutes late or an hour late or two hours late or whatever it is. It's not gonna hurt for us to take another five minutes to let you get settled in and get your head in the game. So I think that's yeah. very important yeah, I, to I, remember. I, I quite agree. It was easy when you're a first officer because you would expect the captain to have you know taken his time pre prepping the airplane, uh, but when you're the captain in particular and you've got a first officer you may not ever have met him before, and you suddenly climb into your seat and he says, "I've done everything," and you go, "Well, I don't know you from Adam much as I would love to take your word for that. I'm the one that's signing for the airplane, and if it all goes wrong, I'm going to be the one that carries the can." So, yeah, I did exactly right. As soon as you got in the seat, you've, you've that's it. You need to just let your heart settle, give yourself a few minutes to uh, have a look around, make sure every you're comfortable with everything. Quick look around the box. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Mm -hmm. Let's go. And that's for everybody's benefit because if you don't do that, then the chances of you doing something kind of stupid and getting in trouble and having to fill out paperwork or worse uh is yeah. is the chances of that is is much much higher so i haul it, boxes has an important i haul boxes is saying how much time usually goes into pre-flighting your gopros and parachutes <laughs> mm. quite a bit good. actually quite yeah, you gotta seems make sure like those camera angles are just right you know Absolutely. you gotta make sure that you don't accidentally leave your uh handheld selfie stick behind and i would imagine easily, uh, you know, pre-flighting the fire extinguishers in your pant legs. Um, well, you some don't time want to well. <laughs> set those off as you're climbing out of here. That would be embarrassing on your video. Yeah. Um, oh. Perhaps he just got hot testicles. I don't know. A, pre <laughs> a premature extin extinguishing. Oh, how embarrassing. <laughs> how embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> Number six. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Liz. Uh, here we go. Uh, Spencer uh, says, I think we're one step closer to planes flying themselves. Hmm, really? No, oh, I don't think so. Uh, this is from liveandletsfly.com, which I assume is some kind of a blog. Um, Air Canada. Oh, let's see. Hang on. We have that. And then we have also the, uh, we have a couple different sources here from the Aviation Herald. Let's go with that one. That's usually a little bit more accurate. 
uh, Air Canada Boeing, is it what, what we got here? Boeing 737-8 MAX. I, I didn't recognize B-38M. What's that? <laughs> I guess that's the... Uh, designation yeah. that they use um 738 yeah 737-8 max registration charlie uh, golf echo kilo x-ray performing flight 234 from vancouver british columbia to edmonton uh, alberta in canada with 160 passengers and six crew was accelerating for takeoff from vancouver's runway 26 left when the nose of the aircraft rose unexpectedly <laughs> again Whee! How embarrassing. The crew was able <laughs> to hold the nose down and continued takeoff. The aircraft continued to Edmonton for a safe landing. The Canadian TSB reported the load sheet showed 89 bags in the forward cargo hold, however, uh, were loaded into the aft Ouch. cargo Ouch. hold. Ouch. So those were, yeah, someone doesn't know their forward from their aft. Yeah. Yeah. Or is there, there's probably other ways to say that, but thank you for not using those. Um, Ask from a hole in the ground. There you go. That Liz just did it. Uh, what? Ask from the, her elbow. Yeah, or something like that. So uh, the, the thing that is not clear to me on this is, and maybe they have the information in that flightaware.com link, uh, but I don't think so because I don't think ADSB starts really – um, reporting until they're, or at least in this case, I think I did look it up uh, to you know see how fast they were going yeah. when this may have happened, and I think it didn't start recording until they were airborne and like above a hundred feet or something. Uh, that's what I'd really like to know here, uh, because to me, you know, the nose rotating prematurely—that's uh, significant. That means something's wrong with the trim or the loading or whatever. And I'm not sure I want to keep, I, I see if the airplane's going to do okay in the air with that situation. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? No, I agree hundred percent because, uh, balance field, uh, V1 and uh, rotator about the same time. So if the aircraft's trying to rotate well early, it might well be below V1, which is an easy abort decision if it's occurring below V1. And, uh, if, if you're having to hold the nose down to wait for the rotate and you then get airborne, there's no guarantee that you'll be in a controllable limit. The aircraft might pitch up, and because it's so RCG, it might continue to pitch up. You might not have control authority mm -hmm. to level the aircraft off, uh, which would be my major concern. So... I think this would be you'd be entirely justified in aborting the takeoff in this case. That that's one of those situations that uh, you know I talk about in my briefing for uh, abnormals and and abort rejected takeoff situations. If if you don't think the airplane is safe to fly or will not fly or uh, you know unable to fly, then that no regardless of where you are in that takeoff role, that's an abort situation. So um, yeah. and to me. The nose coming up like that—that that could be uh, unsafe to fly at that point. But, but as Liz says, there are a bunch of cowboys out there in, uh, in, uh, in Canada, and, uh, and they got some That's big old—they got some big old mountains, and they're cowboys. So, <laughs> woo yeehaw! <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, because after all, all you need to do is roll upside down, and you'd level off, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Good Kinda. point. How, how about uh, once you guys get the airplane leveled off? At that point, are you thinking, oh, you know, the airplane is stable and controllable right now. It won't get any worse because we know that it's going to, the fuel's going to burn to a, a certain direction, either forward or aft, I guess, depending on the airplane. 
Mm-hmm. Or are you still thinking something happened that I don't understand? We're going to go back and land. Well, I think in this case, they did, they did not know that the bags were loaded incorrectly. So they didn't know the nature of the. Right. The pilots mm-hmm. wouldn't have known the nature of why the aircraft was trying to rotate. Prematurely. Yeah, I, yeah. Right. I guess that's okay. what I'm getting at is like yeah. you have an un, you have a something happened that you don't understand, but you have the airplane flying controllably. I guess I'm questioning like flying onto your destination versus landing. Yeah. At oh, the, I, I think the point here was why they take off in the first place. If it's, yeah, you know, but, it's Nick's yeah. point, if they were the secondary V1, point, yeah, yeah, the secondary yes. point is a good point as well. So you've screwed sure, up sure. and you, you've gone. And now right. what yeah. do you do? Do you keep on going? Well, I don't know what's going to happen when the fuel burns off. It might get worse. It might get yeah. better. Yeah, let, Let's I don't look know. down at the trim wheel and yeah. just see how close we are to the trim limits because that's a very good indication of where your center of gravity is. Yeah. On a smart airplane like an Airbus, it'll indicate it for you. It'll recalculate it if it's been wrong, but depending on the balance of the airplane that it, it detects. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you, you look down, and if you're very close to your – trim limits chances are that things might change during the flight and then you've got a you're a sweat wing or a straight wing where's the cfg gonna move as i burn fuel and unless unless you're absolutely certain you're going to be safe i think the simplest thing is to throw it straight back on the ground i think again before the situation gets any worse Mm -hmm. so gubby's got sorry i kind of misunderstood your question there nixie but yeah gubby uh, says so we had a kilograms for pounds mix up on box top we were 26,000 kilograms not 26,000 pounds aircraft flew very nose up thanks logs personnel <laughs> <laughs> you mean you didn't go out and weigh your own cargo dear oh dear <laughs> we have a yeah, little, how slack of you big um Notice to jumpers in the back of the caravan, show like telling them where they should not sit because there are places that are too far aft. Um, and usually, if you notice the airplane trying to pitch up too soon, the remedy is to quickly yell back, "Get out of that space! Move, <laughs> Move up! Forward. Yeah. Move forward! Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good point. Or jump out one or the other. Well, you know, when you're on the runway, <laughs> so that's probably not a great idea. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of the problems in the C forty seven is the lav is in the back. Uh, behind the door <laughs> and you have no autopilot right so when you're trying to fly this airplane in in cruise you get it all trimmed up finally to where and someone goes in the lab someone goes to the bathroom you're like oh man you <gasps> retrim the airplane fly while they're in the bathroom and they come out of the bathroom <laughs> it's constant constant battle oh man i love it well i haul boxes was trying to help me out in the uh, aircraft designation mcdonald's 737 dog bus neo max <laughs> yeah the uh the 38m is definitely the boeing mcdug bus Yes. Yeah. We were, we were ahead of yeah. our time, I think. We've had that airplane, yeah. Yeah. All right. And uh, so um, thank you for bringing our attention to this incident, Mr. Spencer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in this case, uh, I, I wasn't expecting this kind of article when you said airplanes flying themselves. I thought you were talking about getting rid of pilots, but this airplane wanted to go fly a lot earlier than it should have. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, oh, Tim sent this in. This is uh, something that uh, we got. He uh, posted on the uh, Facebook page, I believe. Uh, Hi, APG team. I was hoping you might like to discuss this incident and give some insight into likely causes. It appears similar to the C-130 uh, fire tanker that clapped its wings and crashed in Canada many years ago. Now, it's not Tim's fault. The person that posted this in Facebook um, and he was just, uh, or saw somebody re Facebooking it, reposting it. 
um, said Cessna 210, but this airplane was uh, not a Cessna 210. This was an Embraer 202A uh, Ipanema, I think is the way you would pronounce that. No, it's yep, not. That's <laughs> I actually looked that up and thinking, huh, really? Ah. Is that? No, it's, a, it's something else, actually. Uh, but we do have some uh, video of this incident, and it's uh, quite um, uh, interesting. Here we go. Okay, we see the airplane in the, in the distance dropping something and then pulling up, and uh-oh. Oh, wow. Ow. Yeah. Uh, both wings uh, went straight up. And um, actually, the pilot did not die. That's which is amazing. Kind of a, been a, mir- a miracle. Huh? Anyway, yeah. um, you know, here, I'm going to turn the uh, sound down again and we can uh, watch it again. Okay, coming in. Getting rid of whatever. So the, this is a crop sprayer, is it? Yeah, He's just crop. dumping water. Yeah, mm-hmm. like crop I think it was water or something in there that he was, and then yeah. Oop. The uh, the article says the app the application was canceled due to bad weather conditions. The pilot discharged water from the tank on the landing site and began to climb. And both rings broke and hit the ground. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not good. It's not good. Not good. Um. Anyway, it's odd. I don't. I, You'd think that, to know yeah, what you why? all think about this, but I don't know why that should happen. No. Should I mean, you, if, it if, it, look- if it applied, if it overgeed the aircraft, um, I would have expected it to have turned, cons- pitched considerably more mm-hmm. because, um, you know, even if you snatch, I don't know what the aircraft G limits in this thing was, five or six G, the aircraft will start to pitch before the wings fall. This had barely started to move. Um Unless it was uh, something like an overspeed, unlikely. I think their dynamic forces wouldn't be too much. It looks like just a f- the aircraft has fatigued, I would yeah. say, perhaps. Yeah, yeah so I, I think uh, for people who are listening and are unfamiliar with this EMB-202, it, it looks like an air tractor. So it's uh-huh. a turbine-powered like aerial yeah. applicator airplane. And, uh, you know, one of the issues they fight with those airplanes is some of those airplanes I think have uh, fatigue lives or service lives, which isn't as common on these smaller airplanes because they fly the airplane in a, in a little different manner than most GA airplanes. But then also all of the structure is always being subjected to whatever chemical they're spraying. So a lot of times they're fighting corrosion. And I think there's a, an AD on the air tractor for a wing spar issue um, due to similar uh, a similar crash. So... I don't know if it's uh, – yeah, it definitely doesn't look like he overloaded the airplane, but you know, maybe it's a, a structural issue because of what they've been spraying or uh, something similar to that. Yeah. I mean, you watch um, – you know, if, if you've spent any time in rural areas and you've seen some of these um, crop dusters in action, air tractors, aerial sprayers, whatnot, um, you know, their, um, their goal is to get down – very close to the field, spray, and uh, uh, you know they're they're going back and forth across a, basically a grid that they've plotted out, and then they need to pitch up, make tight turns, come back down. They're trying to be as efficient as possible, so they are subjecting these aircraft to um, fairly higher than you know usual for GA aircraft um, G forces, I would say. And that didn't look oh, yeah. that didn't look anywhere near what I've seen some of those aircraft do, um, yeah. just from the video. 
No, and they're probably uh, often operating from pretty rough fields uh, when they're doing their reloading of uh, chemicals or whatever it is they're delivering. So, you know, the, the wings get a lot of um, extra pressure uh, from those landings and takeoffs. So, yeah, they, the airframe can get a lot of punishment doing this kind of, you know, very manual sort of job. It's a, it's a, oh, I'm trying to think of a good, adjective for that type of flying but it is uh, it, it would put a lot of strain on the airframe so i think you'd have to keep a very close eye on your aircraft to make sure they're safe i was trying to um i listened to actually a very interesting podcast episode on a, a different podcast uh, um 21.5 podcast um i think that's the name of it um they interviewed a um a guy who basically made a career out of um, doing crop dusting and aerial application of things. It was very, very, very interesting to listen to some of the stories and the, the things that they do and how they, um, you know, really plan out their their flying and the safety precautions they take and the things that happen despite all of that. They hit, hit a lot of power lines, basically, is what I took away from it. But um, definitely interesting to, to listen to. I'll see if I can find the actual um, – podcast episode number and, and name if people are interested but i, I would highly yeah. recommend listening to that it was it was definitely an interesting uh, perspective to hear interesting yeah i i mean it's always been renowned as being one of the most dangerous flying jobs professional flying jobs in the world being a crop duster mm -hmm. uh, because of the terrain the height you're working from the obstacles in the area you have to go to and the fact that when it's your season to deliver chemicals or whatever you're often working from dawn to dusk because uh, you know it's a really long hours uh very, very tough way to build hours or to earn your living, I think. Yeah. does look like fun flying, though, but as long as you don't have to do it all day long, yeah. every day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a bit like being a racing yeah. driver, but for doing it for 13 or 14 hours. Yeah, it wouldn't be fun. All right, uh, moving on. We uh, will try to knock out as much as we can here, but we have less than 10 minutes remaining in this week's uh -oh. episode. Uh, this is Tom from Pittsburgh. First, congrats on the big 500th episode. Thanks. Wait. I wrote you all a couple of uh, times a few years back while I was grinding my teeth out at a certain friendly 135 operator. My commute was about three hour round trip to my base, and I recall all those early mornings waking up at 0200. Uh, to drive to work and having you all in my car's speakers on my treacherous drives up to my base. I can even remember the pure excitement I had when Captain Nick did the most wonderful plane tale I suggested, Taco Flight 110. I was hanging on every word like most every plane tale, but this one was so close to home for me. So again, Captain Nick, thank you for that and all the others. Absolutely and my pleasure, sir. As the years passed, I became a negligent APGer, uh oh, uh oh, and fell away or fell way behind on the show when my commute shrunk from one and a half hours per way to ten minutes to my home base in Pittsburgh, flying an Embraer for Acme Brick. Recently, I had about a total of three thousand mile to three thousand miles to drive, so my only choice for long haul audio is, of course, the APG show. After the bulk of the holidays passed, I decided to write y'all again to thank and congratulate you all for everything you've accomplished. Now, I do have a question for everyone on the show. As the new year starts, I'm finding myself through ground school and Sims going to IOE taking my first command on the Embraer. 
is there uh, congrats yeah, brilliant. yeah good job is there anything Fantastic. you'd go back and tell yourself on your first captain ioe or any sage advice you'd give to a brand new captain it sounds cliche but you know i have to ask once again thank you for all uh thank you all for everything you do and tagging along with me on my road trips Anytime y'all are in Pittsburgh, I'd be happy to treat you to some nice tall beers. It's the least I can do. Fair skies and tailwinds, Tom Troutman. Thank you, Tom. Very nice words, kind words, and congrats on your advancement, your upgrade to commander. Um, so what do you think? Uh, Nick, you uh, were a commander for many years. Uh, what would you give as advice for Tom? Well, one of the pitfalls uh, that I fell into was, um, you know, you're, after you, so many years being a first officer, you think it's great to, um, you know, you think you know everything and you think it's great to uh, use your new position to set the tone. And sometimes it's very easy to set the tone uh, too formally so that, you know, you're, you're, you want to be on top of everything. You want to display your confidence. You want to show the fact that you uh, are the commander. You know that everything there is to know about the airplane, etc. And that can come across really the wrong way. And it takes a few years to settle into that more relaxed, easygoing attitude when you're completely comfortable with letting other people show their knowledge and not trying to one-up them all the time, going, well, I'm the captain, I know more than you, so I'm going to uh, prove, oh, I'm going to demonstrate that you are in error. Um, and uh, that is a very easy trap to fall into. So there were occasions I look back now and I think, I wish I had just let let things ride, let a lot more ride without correcting uh, what I thought to be uh, an error because unless it's a big thing, uh, it's often much simpler just to find the quiet moment when it is right to just so correct something if you think it's important enough to correct it often it's not. Uh, so that would be the, the biggest thing. But quite honestly, that comes with time in the seat and confidence. And when you're first in the left-hand seat, you don't have a lot of either. So it's a learning process. And uh, we all look back and think, oh, I wish I'd done that better. I wish I'd been a bit more relaxed about that, a bit more laid back. Um, but, you know, you, you get there in the end. So by the end of your career, you think you've nailed it. But it's, it, you know... It, you're going to make mistakes and just be happy to accept them. You don't have to be perfect, even though you've done all this work to get where you are. You don't have to be perfect all the time, except the fact that you're going to make the odd mistake and uh, just learn to live with it. Be easygoing. Yeah, we will never be perfect. You'll always no. make mistakes. Um, Nick, C, have any Speak for yourself. advice? No, Liz says, speak for yourself, no, Jeff. She never not, makes mistakes, apparently. <laughs> not particularly. Uh, Steph? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I think it's it's hard to, uh, you know, I don't have um, specific experience in that uh, or in that specific situation. But anytime you're um, setting the tone for your team, the group that you're leading, um, it's, it's always kind of a fine line to walk between um, making sure that things are um, you know, running professionally, smoothly, efficiently, um, but also making sure that everyone's enjoying what they're doing and they're happy to 
be there with you and and committed to the the mission, the outcome, the goal, whatever that is. So um, yeah, I think I think managing to um, well, the exact question was something about um, advice you wish you had given. Correct. I'm trying to remember exactly what he. Anything you go back and tell yourself on your first Captain IOE. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's probably don't sweat the small stuff. I think it's easy to sweat the small stuff, but that's not the stuff that's going to be important um, in the long run. So um, a lot of like, a lot of what Nick was saying, I think is, is very appropriate. Yeah. Um, on your first IOE, yeah, don't try to be, as Captain Nick said, a, a know-it-all. Uh, just the fact that you have made it long enough there at the company to go through upgrade school and you've met all the requirements is, should be evidence enough that you belong there. And uh, so the same goes for, you know, flying with your first officer. There, you don't have to prove anything, just your actions, uh, the way you fly the airplane, the way you communicate with the crew, the way you communicate with passengers, that is going to be um, uh, revealing to the first officer you're flying with. And also uh, very sage advice that use the skills and judgment of your entire team, your first officer and all your cabin crew and make them look, make you look good. You know, let them make you look good. Don't mm -hmm. start off by uh, being in a, in creating an environment where people really don't want to be with you because you're an, a jerk and uh, uh just trying to prove how great you are. That's in the long run, not going to work out very well for you. So let them uh, help you uh, do everything and, you know, remind everybody that you're a team. And uh, the only time that you make a mistake is if you both make the mistake, uh, those for two pilot crews, you know, let's try to do this, get through this, have fun and, um, you know, provide a, a great, comfortable, enjoyable uh, service to the passengers. Mm -hmm. And yeah. remember all those times don't, don't that you be a, rode, be a nice guy. Yeah. And you know, all those, those, the times that you flew with those captains that you're, you're thinking, I, I, I wish I weren't here. I don't like this person. Um, you know, remember those people and don't then remember guy. the one, yeah, don't be that guy. And then remember the ones that you want to be like, you know, and, and just, and that's the whole, journey uh, becoming a commander or captain is is learning all the good and bad from all the people that you've flown with in the past and then uh, you know doing creating the the best captain out of all that and make it you I, I am going to address Mike as a side note to me he's talking specifically about medical stuff which is not what uh, Tom was asking about he says whenever I this is Mike is speaking whenever I have the kind of procedure that you do regularly I tell my doctor I know there's always a possibility of mistakes just don't let me hear you say whoops whoops um, <laughs> so it's, oh, it's very wee. well especially you know so our patients are are sometimes something to help them calm down a little bit but they're awake so they can hear everything that's going on and um you know the things that happen where it's just reflexive nature to say whoops or oh, dang it or uh, um and those are that's that's actually a very good point, Micah. So um, um, I've heard this from other doctors, and I'm pretty sure someone told to me in training as well. If if you think you're going to say "oops" or "oh no" or uh, something that indicates that you made a mistake, instead just say "there it is." <laughs> there <laughs> very it is. confidently. <laughs> there's there's a thing there that's going to end my career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because usually it has nothing to do with the actual procedure nothing going on with the patient it's like 
you, you drop something and it's completely inconsequential. It had no, it's, makes no difference at all, but your instinct is automatically just go, oops, like don't say oops, like just there it is. I love it. That's yeah, sage advice. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Hey, well, we're going to quickly, I know we're already over the three hour point, so don't, don't get mad at me, people listening, uh, but we're going to do one more piece of feedback and then we're going to wrap it up. Uh, number 16, we're jumping to, uh, Tim writes in, well, here's something you don't see every day and thought y'all might like it. I do have a question about it. Why would they need to push it instead of just using the airplane's power to taxi off? Is there some kind of a rule about not being able to taxi with a blown tire? But, get, but getting a push is okay. Thanks. Keep the blue side up. Unless you're flying over water at night, then keep the blue side down. Choose appropriately. Thank you very much. That's good advice, Tim. Uh, so the incident that he's to which he's referring is out of the NewYorkPost.com. Uh, passengers forced to push plane down runway after tire ruptures. Uh, in a technique seemingly reserved for automobiles, Nepal airline passengers were forced to push their airplane after a popped tire stranded it on the tarmac. Uh, let's see. The surreal scenario occurred after a wheel allegedly burst on a Tara jet or Tara jet that uh, had just landed at Bajura Airport from Simcot in Humla, the Indian Express reported. As a result, the lightweight twin otter, the Twatter, Aircraft was left stranded in the middle of the runway, preventing other planes from departing. As the facility lacked the tools to move the plane, passengers and security personnel had to come together to resolve the situation. The resulting 20-minute footage shows the intrepid team pushing the green and white jet down the runway like ants with a caterpillar as bystanders cheer them on. Um, ants with a caterpillar as bystanders cheer them on. Okay, so... Uh, wasn't looking. Oh, here we go. A uh, couple of pictures that we have here of the passengers outside of the aircraft um, shoving the airplane out of the way. Uh, they didn't bargain on this when they bought their ticket, I would imagine. Did they get a refund? I don't know if they got a refund or not, Liz. That's a good question. Um, so how many times has this happened, this scenario, uh, uh Steph, since you fly uh, the Twin Otter? For Zero. Your, yeah, I had a feeling it might might be that. Yeah. Uh, why is there, you know, he asked, is there a reason why they didn't just use the airplane power to taxi the airplane out of the way? I can't think of a great one other than perhaps they um, realized that the aircraft wasn't moving appropriately and they couldn't tell exactly what was wrong. So they shut down the engines, got out and, oh, we burst a tire. Um, and it's just cheaper um, instead of restarting the aircraft and using its own power to get oh. people to push it. Oh, um, well, iHaul has it. Well, it's cheaper until it. someone pushes where it says, do not push. Do not push. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh. There's not too many of those places on the otter, to be honest. It's pretty, oh, okay, it's pretty good. robust. iHaul um, boxes yeah. says, he's got it. Manual push, noise abatement noise procedure. Abatement procedure. <laughs> yeah. It may have been a significant grade as well. Um yeah. Oh, there are not many hills in that area of yeah. the world. No. Although I would <laughs> think flat. if you can't get it to move with the power of the engines, it's going to be very hard to yeah. get that uh, what do you to, think, get it to move under people power. I, I was no idea. I, <laughs> I guess the the pilot shut down and went. Well, not our problem. <laughs> and uh, you know, someone else said, "Well, let's give it a push." Uh, I really don't know why on earth you would try and get the passengers to push it rather than just crank those motors up and go for it. I mean, the only thing I can think of is that it's a high wing, so the thrust line's fairly high. Uh, it might not have 
rode, uh, you know, traveled well. It might not have rotated the flat tire very well. Uh, people pushing from underneath might elevate the air fuselage a little bit and take some weight off the blown tire. But uh, I'm, I'm struck, uh, plucking at straws here. Craig's mm -hmm. got another idea. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, the airplane is obviously listing a little bit because the, the tire went down on, on some airplanes where you don't have very much prop clearance. You may be concerned about getting a prop strike. Not a, not a concern with the twin otter. The propellers are still high. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not a concern. Um, so yeah. I, you know, that was. I thought maybe with that engine coming down a little bit, they were concerned about ingesting thod. No, Once again, it's, it's still, still not idea. <laughs> my, my really, my only thought is they had shut down the engines to assess the situation and see, and then it really just wasn't going to be cost effective for them to fire them back up. <laughs> so you think it's economics <laughs> in this situation? I mean, that's yeah. what we would think. Yeah, I think Justin Bieber. Uh, that's how that's how our there. brains would work in terms of the amount of fuel we'd be be using. Yeah, like perhaps that. they only had barely enough fuel uh, for the next leg, and they couldn't refuel up there because it was so such a remote place. That's, that's entirely possible, to be honest. So they didn't want to waste any more gas trying to taxi it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think Craig has an idea here. Uh, they were training for Mount Everest. Yep, <laughs> all those Sherpas <laughs> on board. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Isn't there an airplane called the Sherpa? Mm -hmm. Yes. There you go. That's what they should have been flying. Yeah. Maybe they thought that's what they were flying. That might be the problem. <laughs> this is your airplane. You push it. Okay. Well, oh, okay. that is going to end it for today. We have lots of great feedback still uh, that we didn't get to in today's program. We oh, get Liz to will be happy. It. Yeah, Liz is very happy. Uh, move it on to the next show, which will be sometime in the future. <laughs> we're not sure exactly when. <laughs> yeah, keep it vague. It depends if you can get out of that house and all the snow coming. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll uh, you know, as we always recommend, always follow us on Twitter, uh, APG Crew. Well, we'll Steph is going to tell you about that in a minute. But anyway, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We'll put out notices. Liz actually puts them out and lets you know when we're planning on doing the next episode. And then you can join these great people that we have with us today in the live audience. And uh, they really make uh, this show doing uh, or worthwhile. Um Anyway, um, so what was I going to say? Oh, we always website. Website. talked about our website, airlinepilotguy.com. It's a great place to go to find out more about our crew and uh, community and the community calendar and the APG library merchandise, um, a place where you can start out at least uh, watching us doing our live recordings on YouTube. Calendar. And the calendar, I, I already mentioned that right away at the, at the we'll front. the show on that. Um, yeah, we put the show on the, um, what, what we put the show. Yeah. Oh yeah. The a notification for the show we put on the APG calendar. You can check there as well. If you don't want to follow us on Twitter or Facebook and, um, plane tales. How could I forget that? Awesome. That's one of the best, uh, parts of our website where, uh, Nick goes and, or excuse me, the old pilot, uh, goes in there and puts more information, more photographs and stuff, uh, to support, the uh, individual episodes of The Plain Tale, and a way for you to subscribe to The Plain Tales as a separate podcast. And uh, what was the last one, Liz? Coffee Fund. Coffee Fund, of course. Yeah, if you want to uh, support the show financially, uh, please check out um, The Coffee Fund on AirlinePilotGuide.com. <sighs> and we're on social media, and Steph is going to tell us all about that. We are. You can head over to Twitter. We are at APG Crew, and we've got our individual uh, Twitter handles, 
pinned to the top of that page should you wish to find those. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash airlinepilotguy. And Instagram, we're also APG crew on that account. Um, so please join us on the social medias. And just real quick before I before we move on to Slack, mm-hmm. which is also very important, I had mentioned that other podcast, but just in case folks wanted to find it, it's the 21, so the numerals 21.5, all spelled out, um, pilot uh, podcast. And the episode was number 61, What's It Like to Fly Crop Dusters? Oh, cool. I definitely recommend that as well. All right. Um, if you'll text that to me, yeah, Steph, I'll do that. So you can and the then notes. I'll put that in the show notes. Very good. And uh, let's see, uh, Slack. I think you said something about that. Let's see if we can um, find Hillel. I think he's here. He, he knew him. Hey, Hillel. Hello. Can you do Slack? Okay, but I'm dripping wet. Not a problem. Come over here. Just uh, don't get the water all over everything and tell us all about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K. Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack. All right. Thank you. It's a little premature there. It was. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, a little misfire. Is that a premature part. ejaculation? Yes, it was. Sorry, uh-huh. so, sorry. I used all your skin lotion. That's okay. I'll get some more. <laughs> All right. With that, yeah, look up the word that that Nick just used, and he was using it properly. We've had that discussion before. Yes, we have. <laughs> for our new listeners, at all what you're thinking. Yes, Good. for our new listeners, look up that word, and you'll see the older definition, not the one that most people associate it with anymore. Uh, it, it was appropriate for uh, Hillel's outburst there. Uh, before it was time. I don't know how he did that either because he was talking about Slack and had an outburst at the same time. I, I've got a theory. It involves <laughs> another orifice. Okay. Well, with that, <laughs> uh, we want to also thank our producer director, uh, Liz Piper in Toronto. Yay, Liz. Thank you so much. For all your help every week and in between shows, especially, uh, we uh, couldn't do it without you. And why is this not? Okay, I thought I hit the little button here to make it fade. There we go. It's fading away as I am. And now we're going to bid you adieu and wish you clear skies. Oh, before we do that, thanks again, Nick Camacho, for joining us on the show today. And how can we... Thanks. Find it. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, how can we yeah. find you on the, the Twitters and Facebooks? Uh, I think I'm uh, just Nick Camacho on Twitter and Instagram. And, All right. Uh, All the places. A little inactive recently, but I guess I can start. Uh, oh, you don't have to. I, I can nah. Yeah. Nah. yeah. Forget I said. I'll take that out on post. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> finally. <laughs> Wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care. God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Meep, meep. 
Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline, not a guy I fly I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly 